still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends And I hope you're enjoying this beautiful Springs Day Springs Day, or Spring Day We're starting early, folks I'm your host, the great Brian Lass. This is Jim Cornett's drive-thru. There's a man over here. He's going to be reviewing. He's going to be answering. He's going to be laughing and cackling. Maybe dancing. We'll see how these songs are today. The leader of the cult of Cornett, the star of the drive-thru, <sighs> Mr. Jim Cornett. On this beautiful Springs Day. <laughs> see, I it got doesn't you a good feel mood. like it's the middle of the summers. It, it, it doesn't even feel like it's falls. It feels like it's a beautiful Springs day. You don't actually want Is your slinky slinky? That, people found a way to sell a spring to children as a toy. Now we've got goddamn internet and smartphones and everything. There's no you know, entrepreneurialism he, anymore. Here's the other thing. Not enough people talk about this, and I think they should, just as a warning to parents. No matter how easy it looked in those commercials, or if you remember doing it as a kid, you buy your kids a slinking, you try to get that thing to go down the stairs, it never works. Oh, come on. Oh, my thing keeps stopping, like, halfway. It's like, you come on. You couldn't make your slinky go down the stairs? Maybe the stairs are too big, I don't know, or the slinky's too small, or the slinky's too big and the stairs are not at the right proportion with the slinky, I don't know, but... No, 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 it's, it's, it's not fucking rocket surgery or brain science there, Pally. Well, size does it, matter. It's a what? fucking spring and a goddamn set of stairs. I would, when I was seven years old, I could make my slinky go down the stairs. Do you think you? When could were do you? It now? When were you? Do you think you could this? do it now? I was trying. Of to... course, I, of course, I could. Hold on. Where is my slinky? Yeah, get out of here. Wait, what? Get out of here. What? You, do you have a slinky there? No, I can't reach it with my headset. It on doesn't here, count. But I no, that you can't use that. You have to use a modern slinky, the ones they're producing today. Because I tried it a few weeks ago with well, I've got one of my kids, and I tried it a few years ago with one of my other kids, and it didn't work. Well, you ought to try it more than once every three or four years. Every time that you your poor spouse pops out another kid, if you had I'd some, buy a new some, slinky. No, you don't need to buy it. It's a, it's a fucking spring. It doesn't malfunction. You don't need to change the batteries. It malfunctioned if one of the kids pulls it and it stretches it and contorts well, then, it. Well, then, then just take that, turn that child over your knee and tan their behind and behind and tell them to behind? Keep, take the behind. behind. Tan their hide or tan their behind, one or the <laughs> other, whichever simile you prefer. <laughs> and teach them to take care of their shit like Mama Cornette told me, Jimmy. Take care of that. It may be worth some money one of these days. That's why I have a 
53-year-old Slinky that still is fully functioning to this day and can go up and down the stairs. Well, he can't go up the stairs. I'd be asking too much. You just said something really interesting because I always, you know, you've always talked on the show and you've always talked in general about the fact that your mom embraced anything that you were really interested in. But you never really said before, did she actually say to you it would be worth money one day? Oh, my God. Yes. About everything. My mother, she was born... She was born in a log cabin. No, she was born. <laughs> no, this is serious. She was born in a a home without indoor plumbing or running water in eastern Kentucky in the depths of the Great Depression when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president and told us the only thing we had to fear was fear itself. Well, they had to fear wild animals and starvation. So uh, as she grew older, she was still... Careful with her money, finances, things. When 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 we cleaned out the house after she passed away, she had saved. And I mean, it's not like she was living on, you know, I was about to say borrowed time, but not like she was living on pennies, right? She had saved three or four little soap boxes full of soap slivers. Just in case, didn't want to throw the soap sliver away just in case it ever might be necessary, right? So everything that I ever had, it was prefaced with, now take care of that, or it might be worth something someday, or both. That's why I saved everything I've ever fucking had, almost. And regret some of the things I've turned loose of. Because in most cases, it's the kid kept something thinking it could be worth something one day. And the parent is like, oh, get rid of it. Or you hear stories like, oh, the parent threw away the box of baseball cards or the old comics. No, no, no. It's one thing letting you keep it. It's another thing. The actual embracing of the idea could be worth something one day. That's amazing. Well, no, but I was, I was keeping her up to date on the comic books with the annual Action Comics number one call. So she knew the comic books were worth money. And what was the annual call? What do you mean? I've told you this story when I had the chance from Howard Rogofsky in New York, who later became friends with handsome Jimmy Valiant to buy a copy of action comics. Number one for $400 in 1970. And in, I don't know what the, I don't have the inflation calculator in front of me, but let's figure that that $400 today would be like $2,500. For Action Comics number one, the first Superman, mail order catalog. I actually talked, met, and talked to Howard Rogofsky about this. Yeah, I remember having that book. So it was legitimate, right? Because that's what it was worth back in those days. But I'm not even nine years old. I go to my mother in 1970, can I have $400 for a comic book? And that's when I learned my real middle name for the first time. Jimmy, damn it. <laughs> I always thought my middle name was damn it. And of course, you know, in hindsight, who could have known, but she wasn't going to do that, right? Which is later on why three years later, she spent $25 for the Amazing Fantasy 15. But every year when the Overstreet, because actually in 1970, that was the, was that the first year of the Overstreet price guide? for? So there was really no comic price guide value in, in these early days of the collecting business. But then the Overstreet started coming out, and every year I would check to see what Action Comics number one was worth. And I would immediately report this back to Mama Cornette. And then I would hear the same thing. Jimmy, damn it. 
And then when I moved away from home, got in a wrestling business, every year I'd get the overstreet. I'd call her on the phone. She'd say hello, and the first words out of my mouth were the figure that a mint copy of Action Comics number one was listed for in the Overstreet comic book price guide. And when it got to, I was emitting a figure that was more than the value of the house she was living in, the damn it got really fucking intense. Jimmy, damn it! I didn't know! How could I have known? But yeah, but but no, she knew, and, and antiques, she was always big on antiques, because you know, my dad had bought some beautiful stuff when she moved in the house and, and she, you know, we always were flea market people and, and yard sale and puttering around finding knickknacks. So she had to, she wasn't an expert uh, on the value of things in different fields, but she knew that if something was old and you collected it, that it should be taken care of and it might be worth something someday. So I never got anything thrown. As a matter of fact, I, I did the. She did the same thing I was talking about on the experience. We must have had one entire U-Haul truck full of bank statements from the '60s and '70s, and mail receipts and bills that had been paid and blah blah blah. But just in case the documentation was ever needed, it was there. I just checked. You were right. The first year of Overstreet was 1970. There you go. Do you think but talking you, about well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Do you think it's possible to do something like that for wrestling memorabilia, whether it's programs or posters or cards or various different things? There actually isn't a really good accepted price guide for anything. It's just a it's the biggest free market out there in the world, the wrestling memorabilia market. Well, I don't think there is, and there there's a way to do that. And and here's why: because number one, there's and it took Overstreet years in the comic price guide to document, run down, and list all the obscure publications. And I'm sure there's still some out there that's not listed. And now the type is minute and the fucking thing's a thousand pages. But at least there was some documentation when these things were printed or there's, you know, sales records or the publishers or it. it with wrestling, the programs were never listed. Nothing was ever copyrighted. The magazines were that sold on newsstands, but even still then, there's self-published stuff, and it goes back even farther than comic books. The first established comic books in that magazine format were in the early 30s. Wrestling had already been around for decades at that point. And then it, there's also, there's not a giant number of people collecting wrestling memorabilia like there is comic and comic-related stuff, both vintage and current. But there are probably more specialists, I would think, in wrestling collectibles as far as people collect this kind of thing only or that kind of thing only or the ring-worn stuff, or there's so much shit. And so do you do you want you know the genre of the collectible do you want ring worn tights and boots and jackets or do you want paper memorabilia or do you want tickets or do you want there's people with massive photo collections and what it's worth boils down to same thing it's just comics and pop culture memorabilia is more organized but what it's worth boils down to two things how hard it is to get a hold of or how rare it is and how much somebody wants it. And 
That's what, you know, there was 30 years ago, there was no conceivable way that Amazing Fantasy 15 would ever sell for as much as Action Comics number one. That's insane because there are very few copies left of Action Comics number one, considering the importance and the demand. But there was certainly more Amazing Fantasy 15s because of the more modernness of it and the fact that you know, comics were starting to get hot again at that point in time, 62 with Marvel and et cetera, and people, you know, saved them and et cetera. However... Plus, plus 30 years ago, Superman was probably still bigger than Spider-Man. He had a series of movies, the famous TV show. Spider-Man was... Yes. Mostly for comic book fans. But then what happened was it became... There's always a turn in the generation, and the same thing happens with classic car collectors and everything else where the interest moves to not only what's more familiar to you, but what's actually available. And I think golden age people there, when I was a kid, there were people that were trying to put together runs of golden age books and you could kind of still do it, but now you can't, it'd be ludicrous. Oh, I'm going to put together a complete run of captain America golden age from, you know, number one through whatever number, and I'm going to start now. Well, fuck you, right? So, but then so many, Spider-Man blew up, and so many more people want the first Spider-Man now, that the, and especially in high grade, that the Amazing Fantasy price blew up. Whereas people started saying, you know what? I may never get an action number one, and now the big business is only amongst the highest graded copies because everybody else is going to something else that they can buy and it will appreciate in the future to me, but that's just me. You know, there's a book I've been meaning to read. I have it here and I just haven't had the chance yet. And they just profiled the author again on CBS. Uh, I think it was maybe Saturday morning. Have you heard about this book? All of the Marvels? Uh, why have I heard that, but not really? Help me. Douglas Wolk, he read every single Marvel comic ever, up to, you know, whatever certain point the book ends. Right. Read every single Marvel comic, and he puts together the story, because, hold on, let me read from the inside book. The way they put it, <laughs> the way they put it on the show was so interesting. The superhero comic books that Marvel Comics has published since 1961 are, as Douglas Wolk notes, the longest continuous self-contained work of fiction ever created over half a million pages to date, and still growing. It's really crazy when you think about it. Yeah. And taken as one complete yeah. universe. But there was a break in the 50s. Or elsewise, they could have they traced it all the way back to Frank Gotch. Well, I think he actually starts in 62. I don't think he starts like with... I mean, he talks about the early stuff, but I'm not sure if... The yeah, but, well, that's, that's what I'm saying, because, because they changed between when the Marvel Golden Age superheroes petered out in the early 50s, and they went to romance, westerns, horror comics. Then when they brought the heroes back, they made tweaks or changed in the backstory. There was a break in the action, so to speak. It wasn't a continuous narrative. Did you ever like underground comics, like R. Crumb or anything? RVP car. <laughs> Does that mean you never checked them out or you just didn't like them? 
I I would flip through. I would see things. I would. I was. I did. I like the. I like the fucking. That was outlaw shit. I, I even then I liked the fucking. <laughs> oh come on! You didn't like the outlaw comics? <laughs> no, I didn't like the outlaw. I wanted to see a real superhero. God damn it! Look at the fucking physique on the Submariner. Tell me that. Yeah. You know he's not a fucking top guy. He's on that Billy Gunn diet. There you go. See, he still looks good. Takes his lunch to work. But speaking of superheroes, a lot of superheroes or potential. Well, wait superheroes a minute. Now or... I was I was going to ask you something earlier. You completely took us off. It was Mother's Day this past weekend. Do you have a mother in the house there? Yes, I do. What did you do for my, was Mother's Day fine at your home at Last Manor? Wake up early, get her the breakfast she wants. Everyone eats breakfast together, yelling at each other. It's wonderful. And then <laughs> she wants to and hang out with everyone out from there. Well, she's like, you know, let's all hang out together. What are we going to really do? So then we watch a movie. You know, one kid falls asleep. You know, I'm getting antsy. I want to go upstairs. But it was nice. Family time all day. It was nice. It, it's, it sounds like a fucking holding cell. Oh, who's going to walk Swami? I did it last time. It's your turn. And they start fighting. Oh, come on. You, you need to have time to spend with your puppy. You know, that that's one of the highlights of my day when I take a break from my busy action figure signing or whatever I'm doing to go out and walk around in the spacious castle grounds with little Harley and watch her sniff the air for moles. I swear to God, every time I take a break from work, and go in the library and lay on the library couch and Swami jumps up and crawls next to me. Within a minute, Suzanne will come in. Oh, you have time for him. Like, I just <laughs> got here. I just laid here. He crawled up next to me. Should I ignore him? Should I ignore the dog? I Should you spurn the dog? I think not. No, but Mother's Day is supposed to be for the mothers. We got a lot of mothers out there, and you're one of the biggest mothers I've ever known. Hey. But um, I also, since Stacy is Harley Quinn's mother, I took it upon myself to fix dinner, steak, shrimp cocktail, baked potatoes. Harley made some chocolate pudding, but we didn't eat that. And we had a nice dinner and quiet, peaceful evening at the castle here. That's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be fetching and carrying for your better half over there that provides you with all of these children. Who do you think children. Picked up, who picked up breakfast? Who picked up breakfast? Schleppen. I picked up breakfast. You picked up, you you went somewhere and got a pre-made breakfast and brought it back and handed it to people. Maybe this is like a different world, but she doesn't want me cooking her breakfast. She knows what will happen. It will be terrible. <laughs> she prefers me calling the diner she likes and getting the breakfast she likes, prepared the way she likes, and bringing now, it back nice and hot. You can't even, it, eggs. Fry up some sausage and make some biscuits. Make a little sausage gravy to go over those things. Some bacon. Sounds like I'm making brown. Yeah, sounds like I'm making breakfast for you. <laughs> no, I, you can't do those simple <laughs> tasks. You make French toast, but you can't fry sausage. She wanted her breakfast sandwich. She wanted her coffee. And it's Mother's Day. How could I deprive her of that? You want me to deprive her yeah. of what she wants on Mother's Day because of what you want on Mother's Day. How much did you leave the waitress that's probably a mother for the tip that when you picked up the to-go order? Or did you jack her out of that because you were carrying it out? Which waitress? Which waitress did I encounter picking up my food at the diner from the guy at the counter? The guy who owns the place. Well, you could have thrown something in the jar. Don't they have a jar there on the on the counter? Tips for our gregarious wait staff 
They do not. I think people leave tips on the table for the wait staff that are actually waiting. Uh, on you them. ain't you ain't been looking hard enough if they don't have a jar for tips at the cash register. Not every place has a jar for tips. Well, I do. You do where? Yeah, right on my desk in the garage in the Cornets Collectibles Fulfillment Center. One of these days, some son of a bitch is going to leave me a tip. Here's a tip for you. Plant your corn early. <laughs> All right. Bobby Eaton used to do that. <laughs> He'd say to the waiter, would you like a tip? She'd say, oh, yes. Plant your corn early. Then we'd leave her a nice tip. All right. Well, it's my show. And uh, it really is. As, as I said about the Cornets Collectibles Fulfillment Center, I should jump in briefly and give an action figure update. Since the last time I talked to you, Brian Last, which was what, less than three days ago on one of these programs, I just handed off a bunch of stuff to the Feather Bottoms. I'll have you know that another, in just the less than three days, Another 250 figures have been signed and boxed up and are going to be handed off to the Feather Bottoms tomorrow. That's over 100, 125 two-packs where people ordered one of each. And they're going to be on the way out and we're working hard this week. And our, our goal is still to be done with everything. If you have an order that's still pending, it will be in the mail uh, between now and the 1st of June. That is our goal, and the Feather Bottoms are performing magnificently. But if you'd like to purchase something with no waiting for T-shirts and magazines and graphic novels and Cult of Cornet membership certificates and that type of thing, while I'm signing all these figures, you can continue to go to jimcornet.com for the Feather Bottoms Speedy Assembly System and, of course, the Feather Bottom Ultra Careful Handling System, where they fuck your order as soon as they get it. JimCornette.com. Well, there was some wrestling you uh, had That's us a watch. deep subject. What is? Well. The well is a deep subject, not JimCornette.com. Mama Cornette used to say every time you'd say well, she'd say that's a deep subject. All right. Well, let's see how deep we can go in this show with. <laughs> Do we have to talk about the wrestling now, Ma? Well, my theory is always get it out of the way early so then we can just have fun the rest of the show. It, it somehow it never ends up that way. It's always some more wrestling in front of us. Well, we could talk more about comic books and stuff. If you had said yes All to right. R. Crumb, we could have gone in a whole number of different ways. But you're a snob. I'm a snob. I just I just like major league superheroes. <laughs> well, he was a drug super. Well, I guess you can consider Mister Natural a superhero in some sense. Fritz the Cat was a superhero in some sense. The only reason when I was a kid I wanted to see Fritz the Cat, the movie, was because it was X-rated. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? What are we going to see there? Then it turned out to be a stinky movie. Well, stinky movies are one thing. Let's talk some stinky wrestling. Uh, where do we start, actually? <laughs> what do you want to start well, before talking Before we about? get into the long one, you want to talk about Rampage this Friday night. Because this past Friday night, I should say, or this past Friday afternoon at 5.30, the most inopportune time for a wrestling program on cable television in recorded history. We didn't watch all of it. Apparently, something that I skipped through made the news, but I wanted to see Jay Lethal. My man Jay Lethal was wrestling, and that's such a rare occasion I wanted to see it. But did somebody else piss somebody else off before, and I zipped through it? 
Well, they did a promo. The thing that got me to check out the show was I heard from a bunch of people. We got a bunch of emails about it. Lambert and Paige and Scorpio Sky did a promo just talking about being the TNT champion and running down Sammy and Ty Conti, which naturally makes them all baby faces. <laughs> Even though they're running down the town they're in, they're running down wrestlers that the fans all hate. So all this is going on, and then I guess Scorpio Sky said the line, the TNT title is no longer going to be passed around like Ty Conti backstage. Go! And that got some people up in arms. You know, how dare you say that about a woman on TV? Got the fans pretty happy when he said that in the building. <laughs> but I guess before anything else, because several people sent me, and we'll talk about if this is legit or not. I mean, it seems like something. Some people sent me some stuff from Twitter, but what do you think about using that kind of line on TV? Especially, there is no defined heel or babyface here. I don't know who's what in this field. Well, that's, I mean, I the line as it stands, that was pretty stiff. I, I like that, but it should have been delivered by. <sighs> there is no clearly defined baby face or heel, as you say here. And even if it's where, okay, Lambert and company have been the heels, but now we want the people on their side in this against Sammy and Ty. Why do they come out and then, make fun of the people or the town before they, they don't need to do that. If that's the position they're in, cause that's at cross purposes and it's confusing. And I mean, yes, it is a distasteful line and there should be more distasteful stuff in wrestling to get people's emotions up and to sound like that. They're really mad at each other and, or displeased with each other. But there's also another rule of thumb that the lines land differently depending on who delivers them. And if it's some universally beloved, like CM Punk, you know, yes, not only the people in the fucking building would have, oh, yeah, but also the people at home would have, yeah, because they love him and they don't like the fucking other two. But when it's just already asshole heels saying that, when they've Lambert especially has said a lot of other shit, try to get people stirred up. Then it's just people exchanging distasteful comments about each other. And only the really hardcore, I'm going to love this. Even if they do the Tijuana donkey show on television, AEW fans are going to, they're going to be fine with that. But uh, that's another thing. Law of diminishing returns with the way people are touchy about the way you refer to women these days. Why do that? You know, when you're taking chances in the new ownership and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not upset about the line, but the context is just confusing. And, you know, why, why do that? Well, coming out of that promo, and the, the promo ended with Frankie's, Frankie Kazarian coming out there in a suit. See, I remember zipping through because I saw the other page talking. And he's the I, best and, one. He's the best one of them all. He's incredible on the mic. You got to see I, him. Yeah, I don't like him because he's another outlaw fucking cosplay trampoline cowboy. But anyway. But can't you be born that's again? Why I zipped through it. Can you be born again with wrestling when it comes to doing I, things I'm in the past? I'm not really in favor of his being born the first time. Oh, I don't come know on. why I'd want to see it a second time. Go ahead. Well, after that, because that was, what was Rampage? Rampage was the sixth, correct? Yeah. Sure. So on the 6th at 
Uh, Immediately no. after the show. Actually, this is in response to this one. The first one was at 622, so nine minutes before that. Ty Conti tweeted out the typical, and then in quotes, let me call her a bitch because she didn't want to fuck me. And quote, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Your girl better keep her eyes open. I'm not the only one that got DM from you. Dot, dot. Wait a is, is, that a, is that a sexually transmitted disease? DM? I think it's a sexually transmitted message that comes maybe to some people. Well, she got DM from him. But anyway, she said that at 622. And again, the show aired at 530 on that night. So as the, as the immortal Dennis Condry may have said, struck a nerve somewhere? So then this tweet, again, several listeners emailed this to us. Apparently, her name's Alex Gracia. She is the girlfriend of Scorpio Sky. She's in the business. I, I don't know her, so I can't say I've seen her or anything. But she retweeted that, quote tweeted it, and said, you and your man both have a proven, with proven all in caps, track record of cheating, so to even pretend about this is silly. Now do your job and keep me out of your mouth, since I don't even work there. Paige Van Zant is the one you need to be worrying about. So that's what made me think, oh, okay, is this a work now? Because all of a sudden they bring a Paige Van Zant into it, they tagged her in it as well. I... I... I don't know what any of their personal situation is, nor I, I view it much like the royal weddings. I don't give a shit. I don't care. But uh, if they're if they're really bitching at each other and not working in some fashion, then what is Tony running over there? Romper room with fucking sex and violence. They're mentally all seven, but yet at the same time, they're of legal age to fucking fight. So I don't know. All right. Well, we'll see what, how this plays out. The strange social media feud happening in <laughs> AEW right now, featuring the TNT champion. You would think the feud would be playing out on TNT, but instead it's playing out on Twitter. You know, maybe if, if, if they were as believable... <laughs> had as much oomph and, and, and stiffness to their remarks on television as they do on Twitter, the show would be more exciting to watch. Did you watch? You did. You said you watched the Jay Lethal match. Well, yeah, well, and I zipped through, as I said, and just made a couple of notes earlier on. Danhausen is continuing to make Hook look like some kind of idiot. Riho was back by unpopular demand and she wrestled a small japanese child dressed like a genie who did a bunch of flips and couldn't grab a headlock and it lasted forever according to my fast forward on screen but i wanted to see jay lethal because a, a jay lethal sighting where he's actually allowed to have a match on this television pro or any of their television shows uh, is important and we can't let that go by, right? But, <laughs> and you don't know where I'm going with this, Brian, by the time we get to the end of it, but you realize, you realize, if you if you didn't realize beforehand and you did when you saw the graphics for the introduction of Jay Lethal's opponent, that his name, written in English, is literally take a shitta. Did you not see this? I did not. Did not. His see name written in English Come is on. literally take a shit up. Come on. Hold on. Let me look this up. 
AEW Rampage results. Let's see the results here. Uh-huh. Uh, Tony Storm teamed up with Ruby Soho to take on Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, and Jamie Hayter, J.D. Drake, against Hook. Yaka Sakazaki versus Riho. Yeah, the- she was the little Japanese genie. And I was in the Owen Hart Cup. Uh, how come I didn't last the last match here? Hold on. And then Jay Lethal versus Konosuke. <laughs> what does that say? Dude? It says take shitter if you read it. <laughs> if you read it the way it's written. <laughs> now they're saying it, Takashita. But if you read it with English eyes for the first time, it's take shitter. Now, having said that, and I know there's probably this guy is from DDT in Japan. So I'm sure there's video of this guy versus the invisible man or a blow up doll or a six year old child or a donkey, whatever the case. But seeing him for the first time ever, having never heard of this guy before, he was fine. This guy was okay. He had size. He was in shape. He's young. They didn't have to work with him like they're working with a Fabergé egg. He was athletic. He was serious. He did no goofy bullshit. He didn't do a cute dance. He wasn't wearing a bizarre, fashionable jacket that he would use in his offense. None of the screaming Oscar-type Japanese stereotypes over at the WWE. He did a little interview. He can't speak English. He's got a very heavy accent, but you could hide that with a tag team partner or manager if he was a heel or whatever. But if they wanted to fucking put this guy just from this one match that I saw him, if they wanted to put this guy in a in the Blackpool Combat Club or they wanted to push this guy in some fashion, until I see something wrong with him, I wouldn't have a problem with it. He looked more like a fucking young, serious pro wrestler than half the people on their fucking roster. So, and by the way, now that I've said something nice about someone of Japanese descent, besides Tojo Yamamoto, how is it racist when I knock Japanese wrestlers? Because being a wrestler is not a race, it's a profession. So would I, I, would I be professionist? There's no term such as that because it's nonsense. The Japanese people as a whole, as a race, as a culture, they're very nice, very intelligent, very studious, hardworking, respectful of their elders, polite, got no problem. I just don't like the bad outlaw mud show Japanese wrestlers especially when they weigh 120 pounds and dress like a fucking child cosplaying Barbara Eden and I Dream of Jeannie. But I don't think that's a race of people. I think that's a a, lie, a, a, a profession, if you will. Actually, they're not very professional. It's a persuasion of people. I don't like people of the outlaw, mud show, untalented persuasion. So anyway, in this match, they had a good match. Jay Lethal never has a bad one. Like I said, this kid was pretty good. 
Um, he and uh, old take a shitter. Uh, he uses Jumbo Saruta's jumping knee lift, so he hit that boom. There was a distraction of the referee, but he got a two count, and then they went back and forth, and then out of nowhere, Lethal got the lethal injection. One, two, three. Jay Lethal won the match. Good match. Good stuff. I was ready to say they did something right. And then, even though the heels won, they have to jump the guy because there's always got to be an afterbirth. Because we always got to bring somebody else out. And they get more heat, even though there's no reason for it on this guy that they probably never met before. And then here comes the Puddin' Gang, music and all. And thankfully, before old Trent and his partner Chucklefuck got to the ring, the Jolly Green Giant beat them up. But then here comes Pockets, and he does a little comedy just so that we won't take anything seriously. And then here comes Samoa Joe out, and the people actually get up because, okay, here's another fucking guy we'd like to see. And the security stops him from getting in the ring. The same thing they're doing with Wardlow. But besides that, where was the security when the two heels and the giant seven foot six fucking zippy, the pinhead, were beating up the one guy? Where was the security when the three other guys came out and jumped in the ring? Where was the security when the Jolly Green Giant beat them up? But now Joe comes out to get even with everybody, and security stops him. The afterbirth sucks swamp water, so they can't even go two segments and, and get something accomplished without falling in the toilet. Your thoughts? I didn't really watch it. I zipped through it. Uh, for whatever it's worth, I'm kind of not interested in Jay Lethal right now. Let's see where they go. Well, nobody would be just from what he's done there. They would be interested in him from Ring of Honor and his previous career, like everybody else that comes to AEW. You're interested when they start. And they have him with Sanjay. And guess what? I never watched TNA because I never liked it, so I've never really seen too much of Sanjay. All of a sudden, he's just there doing the promos for them, and they got this giant that no one cares about. So kind of makes me care less about Jay Lethal. Sanjay can talk. Yeah, he, he can talk just fine out of nowhere. I never saw this guy on AEW TV. And all of a sudden, he's there, and he can talk. Sanjay can talk, and he's a smart guy, and he's worked behind the scenes in a variety of different places. And if they had made a concerted effort to put Sanjay, and Sanjay and Jay Lethal really are longtime friends, if they had put Sanjay with Jay Lethal as his player, coach, manager, slash trainer, ex-wrestler, whatever the fuck, and made them a little package and pushed them, they'd have somebody for the India market because Sanjay's from, well, I don't think he was born in fucking New Delhi or whatever, but he's of Indian descent. And it, leave off the goddamn Jolly Green Giant because what's that? That's done. Besides the fact that they brought Jay in, everybody was excited, and then we didn't see him forever, and he lost his first three or four matches. Okay, that was... Strike one. You turn him heel and put him, put Sanjay with him, that could have revitalized him. But the only organized push around that has been so that they both can talk and take bumps for a fucking immobile fucking pinhead that makes goddamn almost over in the WWE look like 
fucking Don Leo Jonathan. And nobody gives a shit because it's stop, start, barely there. And now it's targeted toward the India market, which maybe they're turning cartwheels over there, but we can't see them. So, you know what the other thing is, too? I mean, we just watched this WWE pay-per-view that we're going to talk about, and we saw the TV shows the last few weeks. Just coming out there and being a giant doesn't mean as much anymore. I've seen it. You know, what's the difference between the guy with Jay Lethal and Omos? You know, they're the same size. They go out there. They're intimidating looking. I've seen it. One one guy gets his hair cut with a pencil sharpener. My point is... We've seen these guys. There's Dabo Kato. There's the other giant that's there. There have been different people, great colleague, different people throughout the years. Andre was special, and he was the shortest one of them all. Yeah. But it just doesn't feel like it's special anymore just to be seven feet tall or seven foot two and come out there. What are you going to do? You have to actually be able to do something. It's not as easy as it used to be, but uh, they seem to be more seven footers. But they don't seem to be as good. I don't know. But yeah, old Satnam Singh is probably the the final straw on the camel that broke poor Jay Lethal's back with the malfeasance of booking and the lackluster debut matches not through any fault of his, but because he was basically used as a fucking job guy with his first appearances and eased backwards into the goddamn thing. That only worked with Cactus Jack in 89. It's never worked since. Ease a guy into a top spot as a job guy. Do you think Jay Lethal eases himself into a top breakfast? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, Jay Lethal is a very, very healthy and nutritious individual, and I'm sure that that is a very important thing for him. As a matter of fact, Brian, it's very important For a lot of the people in the audience, allow me to read an email that I've recently received from one of our fine listeners. This is Neil in Las Vegas, who says, hi, Jim. And I suppose that Brian would be implied in that. Listening to your podcast, I know you love food almost as much as you love wrestling. I have a condition where my pancreas creates too much insulin, and as a result, I can't eat things with a lot of added sugar in them. As a result, most breakfast foods that taste great are really bad for my health. But do you know of any tasty snacks or breakfast options that are both healthy and free of added sugars? Son of a gun, Neil! Wouldn't you know who won the pony? We know the people that you've got to be talking to. Our friends at Magic Spoon. Because we've talked about this for months now. As a matter of fact, I don't know why you haven't heard it. Maybe you haven't been listening with your Raycon wireless earbuds. But nevertheless, Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Now, we must make note that the honey nut flavor has one gram of sugar. Because after all, there's a nut in that honey. But there's only 140 calories a serving of any of this fine cereal. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low carb, and right now at magicspoon.com, you can build your own box. You can choose from cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, cookies and cream, maple waffle, blueberry, cinnamon, and the aforementioned and newly reformulated honey nut, and all of it available at magicspoon.com. If you go there and go to magicspoon.com slash gym, 
Grab the custom bundle. Use the promo code Jim at checkout. You'll save $5 off your order. It's backed with 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any nefarious reason, they will give you your money back. Magicspoon.com slash Jim. Use the code Jim to save $5 off. Jim, there was more wrestling happening this past weekend. Unfortunately, yes, on an was. unexpected day where we don't typically have to watch wrestling. and it was Mother's Day, in fact. Yes, it was. And it was the mother of a pay-per-view event from WWE. Do you remember when everybody used to get excited about pay-per-views, the big show? The fans were excited. The talent was excited to be on it. The bookers were excited. You had the big matches, the culminations of rivalries, violent stipulations that you couldn't put on television. It was like for the fans, especially back in the 80s when it first started, it was like being able to see the biggest territory super show without leaving your own home. And the as especially the booker built to his biggest match and most important finish. And the talent was all like, yeah, we're going to thousands and tens of thousands more people are going to see us than could see us in any one arena. Now it's a three-hour programming commitment from the WWE that they time they got to fill and an excuse for a basement booker to go completely rabbit-ass insane over an AEW. And there's, again, no no middle ground, no in-between, no just-right porridge. How much experience do I have on wrestling pay-per-views? Now, just off the top of my head or out the bottom of my ass let's that what was how many well how many pay-per-views had vince mcmahon done before crockett did starcade 87 before how many wwf pay-per-views wrestlemania 3 wrestlemania 2 the wrestling classic 3 so i started as a on-air talent on the fourth ever pro wrestling pay-per-view that was ever done in history Although not too many people saw it. Was that the fourth one, or was the Survivor Series the fourth one? I guess that's the trick question. Well, we were in the afternoon, weren't we? Oh, okay. Yeah, see? There you go. But for those of you wondering what I'm talking about, Vince McMahon blocked Crockett Promotions from being able to get their shows seen on most cable systems. By coming up with the Survivor Series, and because of the track record he had from WrestleMania... He said, well, I won't give you next year's WrestleMania if you don't carry Survivor Series, if you if you carry Crockett's pay-per-views. So we got bumped off of all but five cable systems. But nevertheless, it was still the fourth ever wrestling pay-per-view. And I was on either as an on-camera talent, as an announcer, or in the on the creative team for every pay-per-view from Crockett and WCW until the end of 1990. And in the WWF, I was on every pay-per-view as a an on-camera talent or announcer. I think I announced a time or two, but basically, or a producer or a creative team through from 1993, July through or August, SummerSlam, through the middle of 1999. I bopped back in at WrestleMania 17 just to wrestle on WrestleMania for the hell of it. I was on camera or behind the scenes for every TNA pay-per-view from 2006 to 2009, so they were monthly at that point in time, so that's 30-something of them. 
And then I was either on camera or in some capacity as producer or creative or matchmaker, whatever the case, for the Ring of Honor internet pay-per-views that despite the best efforts of Go Fight Live, some of them actually made air between 2009 and 2012. So for 25 years, over one, two, three, four, five different companies, and it used to be a big deal. And you used to take some care and think, I mean, it wasn't just, let's fill this time, because who the fuck's going to see it anyway, and then, you know, nobody's paying anything really, except the you know a few people will order on pay per view, but most people are watching it for five dollars along with everything else that's ever been put in tape on the cock. And it just, other than it being on a Sunday, it felt like just a regular RAW. Well, no, it didn't feel like that because there wasn't the commercials we could skip through. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But it just it. I mean, they started the way they started off, they had nowhere to go but down. In hindsight, would you have started this show with Cody and Seth and it was the best match with the best reaction and the most anticipation from the fans where they actually wanted to see it? Either this one or Charlotte and Rhonda. And uh, so once that they started that that way, it was kind of like, well, now we got to go through the rest of it. Yeah, Cody's becoming like their CM Punk. <laughs> you know, he returned. <laughs> I'd like to see what the merch numbers are. But you are. don't have to improve the lead-in at WrestleMania Backlash, and and there's no reason to hook them because they're hooked or they wouldn't have wa started watching on purpose. I mean... I'm personally glad they put this match first because I was able to enjoy it before anything else would have tainted, you know, my thoughts <laughs> of wrestling for the night. Yeah. It's like having a bad appetizer, and then it ruins the meal, right? Exactly. Um, so Cody versus Seth was first and they did a package with, uh, the highlights of, of their rivalry and, and Cody was interspersed with Dusty, which I thought was cool. It made Cody look like a star and it made the rivalry with Seth look actually even more exciting than it has been on television. Cause you just got the highlight reel, just the glimpses, just the sharp comments, whatever. But everybody's, that audience has seen Cody as a big star. And there were Cody chants for the match started. And it was also, as is the case with the WWE, it was 12 minutes into the show before the bell rang for the first match. But that used to be a big deal with Vince and most other promoters. How fast are we going to get into the action? They don't ask that question anymore. Specifically with Vince, that was a big deal. Well, yes, that's why if you didn't have, in the Monday Night War days, if you didn't have a, a, an opening match or an opening segment that involving big names, the, the top stars, you need to get into action as quickly as possible. And, and that's something that, you know, it, it was not, Vince didn't invent that. It's like you hooked them with the action. Now the action is kind of, Secondary, at least in the WWE. But having said that, this was great. Rest, this was a great wrestling match. And they put it together perfectly because even from the start, 
Cody would do a few things, but Seth would take over. Seth would piss him off and then run. Cody's temper would flare for a second, but Seth would get back on him. He took a great spinning clothesline bump on the floor, Cody did. And they kept him in the position where he was selling and fighting from underneath. He'd make a little bit of a comeback. But like one time he made a little comeback and went for the Cody cutter and Seth pushed him over the top rope. Great timing on that. And they put it together so that the people would have to wait to see Cody open up all the way, which is what they were milking. And Rollins was aggressive. There there was that one superplex where everybody is just going ka-flump-flump on the superplexes these days. The landing looked a little rough. Uh, it looked they, a lot it, rough. It looked like he landed well, right yeah. on his leg and hip. And, I, you know, I don't know. I've seen that several times here lately. Uh, but they traded chops looking like they meant it, not standing there like, come on, hit me harder and I won't sell it. And then they started going into false finishes. The Cody Cutter got a big pop. But they went back and forth, kept up a good pace. Seth Rollins' frog splash. Jesus Christ, he must have been 12, 13 feet in the air. But they would sell some things in between these deals so that it wasn't just constant boom, boom, boom. Again, Seth goes the, does the superplex, and then Cody immediately drops behind him and does the crossroads. Why do they even do the superplex anymore? Either it's an awkward landing or nobody sells it. But that's the only problem I had with this match is just the everybody just walks right past the superplex anymore. But again, they had pops. The people were with it on their false finishes. They're going back and forth. And finally, a perfect finish for this. Seth went for the roll up and had the tights and Cody rolled through it and pulled the tights himself, gave the heel a taste of his own medicine. One, two, three. Perfect finish. Cody won as he had to. Seth Rollins, the heel, has an out that he was beaten through nefarious means, but the babyface did it because the heel was trying to do it first. Nobody just got beat flat and buried like is so common these days. And the match was over 20 minutes long and didn't get old because it made sense. So, I mean, you know... <laughs> Both these guys, I don't know what the fuck Seth is doing with the the air swimming and the laughing and the stuff, but he can go. He always has been able to. And Cody, to, what he does best is better in this environment than it was over with the the trampoline cowboys because they're waiting to see flips, and he does a few of them, but only when it makes sense, and he's about the presentation and the way the, the logic of the match and how it's put together and that shines better in a WWE environment and he doesn't have the the group with him around his periphery to get all the heat on him what'd you think this was the best thing on the show right I thought this match was excellent it was the best thing on the show it was one of the best matches we've seen in a little while these two work great together it's just two matches we've seen they work great together it looks like a struggle that's one of the best things about Cody, is his ability to make things look like a struggle. He sells getting hit. He sells going down in a way that looks legit. He never comes out of a match where he doesn't look dirty and <laughs> messy. 
And like he he's up. just been through a fight. Yeah. And he, he was marked up on this one too. He had well where he took that Bret Hart chest first into the buckle. He had rope marks on his upper yeah. arms. Although he does look a little disappointed when he comes out and he realizes he didn't rise through the ground. When he just walks through the thing, there's a look on his face like, ugh, I should be coming <laughs> up through the ground. You don't know what Seth Rollins is. Have you ever seen someone on acid dance to music that isn't there? It's Maybe almost like it. that. It's almost Maybe like that, but it's it. more like PCP. So that's <laughs> the way I'm trying to think of it now. Seth Rollins, Seth freaking Rollins, the character, is a man on PCP who happens to be a professional wrestler. If you see it like that, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. It makes more sense that he's on PCP than anything else that explains his character. Well, and that's that's uh, true, I guess, because remember they put that memo out that they're no longer testing for, for PCP in the wellness program. We call him the Angel Dust Kid. How about that? That'd be a good name for him. <laughs> but uh, all kidding aside, excellent match. These two really work well together. I'm glad they didn't have Cody lose right away because that was a fear of a lot of people. And you can understand why. He won the first match, WWE booking. He'll lose the second match. Well, no, that's... Remember I was saying last week how Cody's not going to lose, so is Seth going to lose again? And I was afraid it was just going to be flat, but at least this was, as I said, that finish made all the difference. And and now Seth, had, the heel, has in his own mind a legitimate gripe, but the people saw him get a taste of his own medicine. But it's just it's just the way that you subliminally you take it. He has an out. That was perfect. Did you see later in the show they had a promo package for uh, for SummerSlam in I think Vegas, right? And it was at a stadium, and they had Cody Rhodes actually doing the whole video, hosting it and talking about SummerSlam. Yeah, I'm, he's the guy right now, and everything that's going on, to me, indicates that Vince is loving whatever he's doing. Because they're letting him do all that he wants to do of it. Well, you said something before that was uh, really interesting, because it was so true. It was downhill from here. It was, Lance. Um... The match that they decided would follow Seth Rollins and Cody Rhodes was almost against Bobby Lashley. And I continue to wonder what has poor Bobby Lashley, the nicest gentleman that you could ever meet, <laughs> what has he done to them? Having a match with almost is like having a match with a piano. But there's... It, it, even Bobby, as big and strong as he is, he looks minute, and you can't you can't move that that much dead weight around for it, right? With you see, sometimes an accomplished worker can have a match with a guy that's not very good or green or whatever, because not only can he the the veteran call it, but he can often put the opponent in the right place for whatever the fuck's going. That's just a lost cause here. And almost can do a few offensive things, but when he tries to sell anything, it's brutal. The body language is non-existent as far as to make you believe that this is really happening. It's a giant man lurching from one side of the ring to the other in a, it looks like he's underwater. In, in an attempt to do the things that he's, you can tell he's supposed to be doing, but he's not, he's not really there. I mean, 
when finally Bobby made the comeback and, and hit him with the clothesline where almost was just supposed to fall backwards and get his arms tied up in the ropes. I understand. I've seen guys miss the arm top. I've never seen him forget to fall backwards into the ropes first. <laughs> he just stood there and Bobby had to push him back and then start pulling the rope up over the, and then it, it, he tries to get the hurt lock on MVP and almost stops him. But Bobby comes back and gets the hurt lock on almost and almost runs him into the corner. I, I, I wrote it that this is like watching rhinoceros porn. One rhinoceros giving it to the other rhinoceros doggy style. Well, I guess it'd be rhino style. They were More doing it heat. first. I mean, technically rhinos were doing it before dogs based on who was on the planet first, right? Well, one would think because, yeah, there there has been more time for the evolutionary species to evolve the dog than the rhinoceros has been around for a while. And if you used to watch the Herculoids, you'll know that they used to have a rhinoceros that <laughs> shot fucking force beams out of his goddamn horn. But anyway, there was another set of awkward heat, another awkward comeback. Bobby almost hit a spine buster, almost fell down. He just didn't go up. And then almost posted Lashley, MVP hit him with his cane and almost hit a choke slam, one, two, three. And that was, Bobby Lashley was fucking competitive with Reigns and Brock for not only the title, but the top spot two months ago, three months ago. And now he's doing jobs for a human waterbed. What do you think? I think Lashley got as much out of him as you could. He's so limited. For everyone that thought Andre the Giant was being lazy when he fell on the ropes, yeah, part of it was lazy. Part of it was, it worked. But he made it look so easy. Almost <laughs> couldn't even do that. And then once he was in the ropes, he couldn't figure out, like, do I sit down? Do I put my legs out? It looked like he was in a hammock. He was just reclining, <laughs> leaning into the ropes. I thought they were going to give Lashley the win just because this has to end at some point, but I think uh -huh. they're doubling down and they've got bigger plans for almost an MVP. I don't know why. And well, and let's not say we don't know why with MVP, just in this current predicament that he's in, he's make fun of other wrestlers outfits. The guy's yeah. dressed like he's going to get up a sandwich at the bodega. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> Right now, MVP is the one trying to pick up a turd by the clean end. But the next match on this program had a special stipulation. It was Edge against AJ Styles and Damian Priest barred from ringside. Not allowed to be down there so there'll be no interference. And this match got hurt by Seth and Cody being, what, 15 minutes before it, and... Same style of, we had an, uh, two athletic grudge matches with two really experienced workers and, or with four rather, I should say. And I think that the people would have been even more into this than they were if this had come first before the other one. But I, I noted it, Damien Priest Bard, okay, that's a stipulation, but this is a big pay-per-view. And while AEW has, as we've talked about over the past few weeks, multiple gimmick matches 
on every free television program. The WWE premium event here, everything was a regular match except for Charlotte and Ronda. And even thankfully to the point where I couldn't have taken it, where we didn't have any multiple person matches, three ways, four ways, five ways, ladder matches, everybody out for themselves. At least they just booked a card, right? They could have actually juiced up the stipulations if this was going to be a big show. But it's again, it's a mirror opposite of the the other company. So both guys worked hard here. Edge is the heel. He worked on AJ's bad shoulder. He's a great heel. The facials, the aggression, both these guys, even if it looks like they're taking stupid risks or ridiculous chances, they're pros, they know what they're doing. Nothing's embarrassing. They're smooth. At you know, at at one point Edge had gone for the old untie the turnbuckle pad deal, and then they left it alone. And then that's the only thing about the match I didn't understand. AJ finally's made a little comeback and he gives Edge the German suplex. Edge trying to hold on to the buckle takes the buckle pad with him. And then AJ runs Edge into the exposed metal turnbuckle and gets a two count. Okay, and then he charges at Edge, and Edge comes up and hits a spear, and he gets a two count. After he just got run headfirst into the fucking exposed buckle. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. They lost me there for a second. But then finally, AJ hits the Styles Clash, and of course, with his bad shoulder, he can't do the springboard. He's going to go to the top to come off with the forearm. And Damian Priest comes out. And I swear to God, as I was just thinking, well, what the fuck? He's supposed to be barred and he's walking down. Nobody's going to say anything. The announcer said, oh, well, he's not at ringside. He's just in the entranceway. <laughs> so, Brian, does that get around that stipulation? In, in- No, of course <laughs> not. But then barred from ringside, but he's allowed to be anywhere else in the he's arena. He's allowed to be in the, in the aisleway. He just can't be ringside. <laughs> well, you didn't bring that up beforehand that's like you're allowed to all you can eat at the buffet in six minutes well you didn't mention that but anyway here comes finn balor out to tackle priest but they fight into the ring and back out of the ring and i'm just what the fuck and and this wasn't a no dq match but anyway somehow during all this aj's been on the top rope a figure in black comes out and knocks him off the top rope and Edge gets a cross face and turns it into a sleeper and chokes him out and Edge wins the match. And I'm thinking now, how is the uh, again, the figure in black has been done and overdone, but as the figure gets into the ring and kneels down and genuflects to Edge and then takes off the mask, it's revealed that it's Rhea Ripley! Hold on. Anything that gets Rhea Ripley away from Nikki ass and involved in the angles with Edge and or Damian Priest that Edge is a top guy. She's going to be involved with the, the top guys instead of the middling girls. I'm for this. And they look great together. Hopefully Beth won't get jealous. Now, I like the part where they just stand there facing the camera, still doing nothing, just laughing at nothing. 
because the camera's still on them and they know they can't just like walk out of the ring. So they just stand there facing the camera, just laughing at nothing. The match was okay. I don't think it was hurt by Cody and Seth because I think it's two different worlds. No one's as over as Cody is. And these guys aren't as over as Seth is right now. Yeah. The fans still are trying to figure out what to think of AJ. I mean, not AJ, of Edge and his new thing. I don't think AJ's as hot as he once was, naturally. Make fun of the other entrances. AJ comes out there, poses like he's taking a shit. And then he jumps up to show his gloves. And it was only recently that I learned that it's not pie. He's not a fan of 3.14. The PI is phenomenal one on his gloves and on his... And you've said, now you're calling everybody by their opposite names again. AJ's wearing the gloves. AJ. You said Edge. But we know what (laughs) pie... I was like, what the hell is Pi? What the hell is this guy? This guy does not seem like he knows math. This guy. If anyone hates math, it's AJ Styles. So now it makes sense that that it wasn't Pi. That would throw me off having the gloves on. I would need to feel what's going on. It seems like with some people, that would throw them off. But he's adapted to it. Just like with baseball. There were still players that didn't like batting gloves. They wanted to feel the sting of the bat on their hands. And other players said, I really want to protect my hands. (laughs) <laughs> but I thought it was okay. I'm not a big fan of Edge. And Edge really wrestles like that WWE style of like drawing things out. And he knows the camera's closing in on his face. So they'll just hold something and make faces for a really long time. It's okay for what it was, but I wasn't too crazy. That works for me in the matches. I don't like it on the angles when everybody's taking yeah. a bloody fucking hour to do something that is a crime and should be done with urgency but i i it's so refreshing to see somebody milk something in a match though i think aj styles may need to leave tv for a while i don't know to me he just feels really stale wasn't excited at all about seeing aj styles and that wasn't the case a few years ago i would always be excited and looking forward to his matches well but isn't that for most people in the wwe you're not ex- you're you may be a fan of theirs but you're not excited to see most of the things that they're doing these days. Whereas in, in AEW, they've got their fans interested in their people. There's just a smaller group of their fans and they cater to them to the point where it excludes anybody else joining that private club with the WWE. Again, it's the opposite problem. They've got a bigger bunch more fans and those fans aren't really desperately invested in anything these people are doing. So, uh, except, as you mentioned, Seth and Cody and the next match, Charlotte and Ronda in the I Quit match. And I thought that this, and uh, again, it's a state of, it's a commentary on a state of wrestling. Seth and Cody was the best wrestling match this was the best grudge fight. So the girls now have the best grudge fights on the major wrestling show. And the people besides Cody and Seth probably wanted to see this, see these two get together, see what was going to happen. I would think more than anything else, any of the other matches on this show. Would you concur with that? I would concur with that. And it really is amazing how Rhonda could be one thing in her promos and you think, oh boy, how could anyone get behind her? And then you see her in the ring and, you know, her and Brock are very similar. They take everything they do seriously once they're out there. And the thing is, 
Again, this isn't hard. And what have we been saying for weeks ever since she came back? We should hear her talk as little as possible. We should see her doing her judo throws and her Ronda shit as much as possible. And uh, above all else, don't leave her because she's green in positions where she's in a battle royal with nothing to do, or it's a multiple person match and she gets confused. Here, this was a whether it's a worker, she she's used to one-on-one conflicts with people. So it's easier to be mentally in this. This was, except for smiling again when she came out for the I Quit match, uh, she's the happiest girl in the whole USA, and she had the Ronda Raccoon eye makeup on. This was what you want to see from Ronda Rousey. They opened it hot back and forth, and it was stiff. It looked like a struggle. At one point, Charlotte nearly fucking folded her up like an accordion with a German suplex. Ronda was doing all kinds of the judo throws. Everyone gets a a pop. Then they did good floor fighting. And by the way, shout out to Rudy Charles, the referee. Good to see him. And then they were fighting on the floor, and I'm thinking, this is fucking great. And then they pulled out the kendo sticks. And I'm, uh, yeah, so and that's then, the thing. I wasn't as crazy as you about fighting on the floor, but then once they pulled the kendo sticks out, that took me down a notch. Well, the thing is, it looked like a, a an actual fight instead of what the girls usually do out on the floor. I could buy this, and they'd been in the ring already, and they'd done the judo, and it was cooking, right? They had it. And then the kendo sticks, and then Charlotte runs and goes to the entrance way and comes out with two of them. And then they slow down and they're going to fence with the kendo sticks. I was liking it so much, right? And they had all kinds of stick shots and they fought out into the crowd and up into the bleachers. It was still a fight, but things slowed down severely. And if they'd have stayed at ringside, done all the stuff on the floor, not brought out the kendo sticks and not gone into the crowd just because that's what the smart fans expect from a big brawl. I think they'd have been better off. They didn't need to go as long as they did and just, and do everything else they did at the start and at the finish. Just take that middle part out. It brought it, the momentum down. It made it more standard bullshit wrestling instead of a real fight between these two. And by the time they'd done that, when they get back to the ringside and they, are fighting around ringside and on the desk, the fans start chanting, we want tables. Well, yeah, because you've seen the kendo sticks and the fighting outside and the chairs and whatever, so now you want tape. If they're chanting, not for the baby face to win, but they want more stunts, or that they don't want Rhonda to kick Charlotte's ass, they want either one of the girls to pull out a table and put somebody else through it. Then they've seen way too much garbage fucking wrestling. And that's, you know, unfortunately that's the problem industry wide. And that's, that's all there. When they see a garbage match, they just want to be fed more garbage. So anyway, so now you have an MMA fighter and former UFC champion in an I quit match, but they're out on the floor using chairs. So that makes perfect sense. But they've never lost the fact that it's a fight. It's still stiff. It's better than most girls work. 
but it, they're just degenerating into bad gaga modern wrestling. They did a great spot where Ronda got Charlotte hung from the turnbuckle and the tree of woe outside on the apron and got the arm bar. And finally they got back in the ring. Charlotte got the figure eight. Ronda wouldn't quit and grabbed the chair that was laying there and hit Charlotte to break it. So theoretically, I don't know that you should be able to do that, but nevertheless, fans are again chanting, we want tables. If they'd have kept up what they were doing before the kendo sticks came out and then got back in the ring and fucking kept it up, I bet you they wouldn't have got that. And they would have, the people would have been all the way into the match. So anyway, finally, Charlotte gets a chair and says, happy Mother's Day, Rhonda. But Rhonda grabbed Charlotte's arm sticking through the chair and got the arm bar on it. And Charlotte had to tap or say, I quit. So Ronda won, and Ronda's now the new champion. And I love that finish because it was a standard arm bar. The chair did nothing, but it looked like it did because it's chair around her arm, and that made sense. Yay for them. I would have loved it completely without the trip up into the bleachers and the kendo sticks, but they still, throughout this whole thing, it was a fight and... I believe there is some element of dislike between Charlotte Flair and Ronda Rousey. I do. I bet there is, but I still believe it. You know, the thing about Charlotte, she's like Cody, what I said earlier. You watch her matches, she's an athlete having a contest. You watch her face, she's strange, she sells, she does all these different things. I can lose myself in a Charlotte match. I talked before about the high-end women are as good as anyone. Ronda and Charlotte work really well together. The stuff on the floor, that took me out of the match a little bit. The kendo stick specifically, because she got a kendo stick, and then Charlotte runs in the back, and there just happened to be two kendo sticks right next to the entrance. Just leaning there, right next to the entranceway. Well, it's because they run a martial arts class in that building on Tuesdays (laughs) and Thursdays. Well, after Sensei Walter leaves, they leave the kendo sticks behind, I guess, but good otherwise. Really liked it, and I guess Charlotte's going to have some time off, and now we get to see what they're going to do with Ronda. Now it'll be interesting. What do you do with Ronda? Well, that that will be interesting because you've got a problem now in that most people still, they know that Ronda's legitimate, so most of the girls on the roster, I mean, let's face it, you would think, okay, she should be able to take girl X or girl Y apart in about 30 seconds. At the top, most of the really good female talent are well, maybe Rhonda and Becky, because Becky's a great heel, but Bianca's a baby face. You wouldn't want to do that. How long is Charlotte um, going to be out? Well, that's that's the thing. Also, they announced that her arm was broken as a result of the arm bar through the chair, and then the. Our fine friends Mike Johnson and Dave Shearer and their whole gang over at PW Insider have reported that uh, she's going to get married. So she's taking time off for her upcoming impending nuptiations. How long does that take? That's not like a pregnancy. No, but, you know, she also has been working there a while and she may get an extended time off. We'll see. But that was kind of my question. If she does get an extended time, Charlotte, if Charlotte Flair, let me use pronouns. If Charlotte Flair yeah. gets an extended time off TV, would you consider turning Ronda heel right now? Would she have more opponents 
If she's a heel, she could work with Bianca Belair. Rhea's now a heel. Becky's a heel. So if Ronda's a babyface, she could work with them. Where would Ronda, how would Ronda be best used right now? If Charlotte's well, but here's out of the, the thing. Again, Charlotte Flair should be, I would think, the long-term plan because Ronda Rousey is in and out. And she came in and yeah. worked a deal and then went to have children and whatever and came back. and she, But Charlotte will be there for the imminent future, barring any injuries or whatever. So the the money... And I would say also, if, if, if Ronda's broken Charlotte Flair's arm, so certainly that leads to a rematch at some point. So in that match, Ronda still needs to be a, a baby face, and I don't know of any match you could build in the next three months with Ronda and anybody that would mean as much as some type of big score settler when Charlotte comes back from her broken arm, so she's got to stay babyface that long. Maybe Ronda just doesn't wrestle a lot, and that probably wouldn't hurt things either. How can I miss you if you don't go away? Well, the show didn't go away. There was another match, but... Well, but I went away for a few minutes at least, because the other match was Happy and Mosh Pit. Oh, I forgot about that match, actually. <laughs> there was another yeah. match. <laughs> <laughs> There were two more matches. I've, I zipped through this, but I read on the internet that fans were chanting, end this match. I zipped through it too. I didn't know that. Now I would wish I would have watched to hear that chant. I don't, I don't know whether the rest of it was worth that bit of entertainment. But And, you know, Mosh Pit, I mean, Happy Corbin just looks weird. He looks like he's been floating in the river for days. But Mosh Pit, if they hadn't given him that gimmick and saddled him with this accomplice and that name and the outfit and everything. He looks like you might could have done something with him, but I'm sure this, if this isn't a modern day red rooster gimmick, nothing is. So mosh pit will probably have a short, unhappy career in pro wrestling. Yeah, we'll see. It looks like disco inferno with a ponytail, but you know, perhaps if you got through the show up to this point, you weren't feeling so good. You wish the good wrestling would come back. It's probably a really bad transition. Maybe there's bigger things bothering you in life, and you could use some help. Such You could use some help, such as me, on this program weekly, having to carry the whole load by myself, for heaven's sake, on these transitions. Folks, I'll tell you what Mosh Pit, Mosh Pit ought to call and talk to somebody about the potential problems he's going to have changing his career. I don't know. I didn't have a transition either, but I would have if it was my show. Nevertheless, if you're burnout, folks, burnout, there's the problem. We don't we don't even have any more transitions because we're burnout. Folks, if your life has been overwhelming, if you're burnt out, if you feel like you've got a lack of motivation, you're feeling helpless or trapped, you're detached, fatigued, then a lot of people associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Just daily life and any of our participation in it can lead us to feel burned out. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself, and talking with someone can sometimes help you figure out what's causing the stress in your life. If you get to the root cause of it, then you can get to the solution. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anybody on camera 
if you don't want to and who wants to be all groomed up and shaved and cleaned up for a video meeting in their own home it's much more affordable than in-person therapy you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours folks and our listeners get 10 percent off their first month services at betterhelp.com slash jce because they've been a fine sponsor of our programs for so long now Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash J-C-E for 10% off your first month services at BetterHelp. Do not be burnt out. Get your, <laughs> get your flame reignited. Spark yourself. Commit arson on yourself. Well, I don't don't know. do that. Light your, don't light yourself Don't do that. If fire. you think you want to do that, call BetterHelp. No, do not light yourself on fire. Reignite the spark in your life. That's what you need to do with better help. With better help. And uh, someone better help these transitions. Someone better help WWE. Surprisingly, the main event of this show, we were supposed to get a tag team unification match. Instead, we got a six-man tag match featuring Roman Reigns and the Usos versus Drew McIntyre and RK-Bro. What do you think would have been the main event on this program before they decided to put Drew and Roman in the six-man tag. I don't know. I Honestly, I would have put Cody and Seth on top. Did they think they were going to have Brock for a second month when they originally booked this? I don't know. Um, but uh, they had teased the tag team unification match with Orton and Riddle and the, Us- the Usos. <laughs> the, the Usos. And <laughs> then they just added Drew and Roman, and here we go. It... <laughs> Let's face it, Roman's over, and Orton's, at this point, he's bulletproof. He's, you know, the one of the icons. And the other guys, this would have been a great house show match, house show main event, but a pay-per-view? It, it's not that it was a bad match or subpar talent. I don't think any of the fans wanted to see it particularly that bad. I think the fans in Providence liked it because they're sitting there and they bought a ticket and paid to see it and there's nothing wrong with it. But is this, when you think of big show main events, having some type of, you know, the fans being invested, want to see what's going to happen, want to see the match, see who's going to win, whatever the case. This was, Seth and Cody was a better match. Charlotte and Ronda had more heat. Plus, they got to use the chairs and the no DQ and all that stuff. And this was a regular six-man tag match with no special rules and star power, top talent, but nobody was demanding to see the top talent in this combination. And especially early at the start, Roman, not wanting to get in the ring with Drew McIntyre, got more response than the other guys did with the wrestling. But um, but this was kind of two matches. First, it was the six-man tag. Everybody's putting their time in. There was 12 minutes, by the way, from the start of the entrances to the bell. But everybody's putting their time, doing their stuff. And let's Reigns and Orton were kind of slumming because they're head and shoulders above everybody else in this. And Riddle, I can't, I just can't get it. His work, his style, his appearance, his bare feet. They all just come off as weird to me. I can see Snuka wrestling barefoot, Yokozuna wrestling barefoot. I don't see this guy as a barefoot motherfucker. So I just, I, I can't, I can't get it. 
But anyway, finally, Reigns and Drew got in after some time had passed, and then they started having the modern... It was two matches. The first half was like a house show six-man tag, and then they kicked it up a notch, but they started doing the modern sports entertainment match where the other four guys were just out on the floor waiting for their next scene and not even visible on camera when Reigns and Drew did their stuff. And then maybe at one point, one Uso popped in the ring, took one bump, rolled back out. And I swear to God, I'm, it's so distracting to me now when in tags or six-man tags or whatever, everybody else besides the two guys in the ring just disappears. You can't see anybody. It's not that they're laying out on the floor selling. It's that they're hiding somewhere where the camera's not going to see them at all because they know that they've got nothing to fucking sell for three minutes. People have been hit with fucking cars on the street and get up to their feet quicker. They're just hiding because it's not, they're not in the scene. And it distracts me more than anything I can think of. Minutes went by before these guys got back in the ring and then they got some heat on Drew, but he got a tag to Orton, and Orton made a comeback and got him back into it. And then finally he RKO'd Roman Reigns, and the place blew up. And then it started more modern wrestling. Everybody then did everything to each other. And they will run in, do a move, and then they'd roll out and disappear until their next scene. And bless Paul verbally. He's the goddamn star of pro wrestling. There's nobody that can talk like Paul Heyman. But I don't even know why he shows up for these things. He, he's, never he's never called on to interfere. He's never figured in any of the finishes. He stands at ringside, stock still holding those belts, and doesn't move. You could, there could be a cardboard cutout. And just and introduce him, and there's the cardboard, and you wouldn't know the difference. Are they telling him to do this? <laughs> I mean, if you don't figure the manager in the finish, that's one thing. But my God, it's like his he's planted in concrete. And meanwhile, everybody else is doing everything. Drew and Roman tore up the desk, and Roman rock bottom drew through through the announce desk. Everybody did dives. Who's legal? I don't fucking know. It was just boom, boom, boom. One guy to run in and do a move and roll out. And finally, Riddle gave Uso, one of the Usos, something off the top rope, one of his flipping rolling things. And Roman came in and speared Riddle. One, two, three. Were they legal? I don't know. Did the referee know? I don't know. I'd lost track so long beforehand. <laughs> It was two matches. It was a regular arena match. It wasn't necessarily setting the world on fire on pay-per-view. And then suddenly they just decided, well, we'll just do everything we've ever known and lost everybody. And the heels won. What'd you think? It was all right. It was a raw main event. I wasn't excited at all about a six man main event where there's nothing on the line. Nothing matters in any way. I didn't really care. <laughs> I can't add too much else. It was just there. 
it was kind of just there. I mean, if they're trying to get people excited about Roman versus McIntyre, this almost did that. (laughs) I mean, he pinned someone else at the end. I don't know. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about Roman Reigns a little later on, but the other thing is, where do you go with Roman? I guess it's McIntyre now, and then what? When are we getting Cody and Roman? Boy, they... It's tough because they should hold that back as long as they can, but there's nobody else in the middle. Cody and Roman with Heyman doing whatever he does behind the scenes, it'll be great. Oh, I'm that and that's why I'm saying is is that's besides the the carrot at the end of the stick, Roman Reigns and The Rock in Los Angeles. I, I don't see anybody on the roster that they can that they haven't already you know done with roman that would matter again besides cody and roman and the rock doesn't need the belt well you know that is a that is a point um that's still going to be the biggest thing they could do whether the belt is on the line or not and honestly well, if the if the belt ain't on the line, I was going to say because Roman obviously needs to win the thing, but will they do that or will they if they get the rock, even if the rock says Roman needs to win, will they will they send the fans home without seeing the rock win on his last match ever probably. It would be pretty amazing if the long-term booking was the whole bloodline thing for years led up to the rock defeating Roman Reigns <laughs> in the name of the family. And that, and somebody, one of these sharp writers and or manipulators could probably sell anybody, even Roman Reigns on that as making some kind of sense, but Rock would know it was bullshit from the start. And I can't see The Rock agreeing to do the match unless Roman goes over. Because Rock doesn't need it, but Roman Day would hurt. Nothing's going to hurt The Rock. But it would hurt Roman. So I can't see Rock doing it unless Roman wins. And I honestly can't see Vince doing the match unless Rock wins. So that'll be it. But besides that, where we were going with that, was Cody's the only other opponent Roman's got? If they if they do it at SummerSlam, Cody could win and he could drop it back. Well, Rumble, if they had to have the belt at WrestleMania, if they do get that match, otherwise it would be a rematch of Cody and Roman at WrestleMania, which wouldn't be bad either, probably, the way things are going. Because who else will it be? Steve Lombardi? Even with Harvey Whippleman in his corner, I don't know if that one will draw. Well, let's stay on the topic of Roman Reigns real quick, Jim, because several of the listeners have been sending in questions about an incident that happened in Trenton, New Jersey. This past weekend on Saturday, as a matter of fact. I have no knowledge of that. I wasn't even there. Speak to my attorney. Okay. Well, not involving me in Trenton. Okay, go ahead. Not involving you in Trenton. You wouldn't be caught dead there. But following a match where he defeated... Many people have been caught dead in Trenton. Following a match where... That's not a good place to show up. Roman Reigns defeated Drew McIntyre on this night in Trenton. (laughs) And then he got on the mic and in the midst of a speech said, and here's a quote... I've been here many times. I've been here probably a couple of times in the past 10 years. I'm starting to work into a new phase in my career. And honestly, don't know if I'll ever be back here again. If that's the case, 
I just want to say thank you for all these years of support. Wait, but Roman Reigns said this? Roman Reigns said this on the mic after defeating Drew McIntyre in a main event in Trenton, New Jersey. Why would he do that? Why would he thank the fans? Obviously, there's a long-standing relationship between Roman Reigns and the fans of Trenton. <laughs> that he felt it was important to address them in this manner, but the word Well, every everybody everybody's up in arms about well, what does this mean? Is he is he quitting wrestling? Is he leaving? Is he going Hollywood? Whatever. I'm more upset that he thank he's a heel and he thanked the fucking fans. That's just idiocy. But what do you think? Is he just is he moving on to where he's got a part-time schedule like the the rest of the big boys and he's not gonna do these shows in Trenton anymore? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think he probably has a new deal, and he's probably going to be working a schedule like the guys he's been working with. Well, gee, I'm doing this program with Brock, and I'm the only one who shows up every week. <laughs> and I think house shows, specifically house shows like in Trenton, New Jersey, are probably going to be out of the picture. I think Madison Square Garden will probably still be included. Major pay-per-view events where needed. Maybe a Raw after a pay-per-view if it's important. But more than likely, untelevised events in Trenton, New Jersey will be out of the equation for Roman Reigns going forward, which yeah, goes into what we talked about before. Where do you go with the WWE title? Where do you go with Roman Reigns? Well, but still, I don't see them taking him off appearing on television most of the time in, in this current climate and the ratings dropping for everybody and blah, blah, blah. So I think probably... You know, it's a good bet that he's not going to be doing that many more house shows, but I don't think it's going to be a Brock situation where he shows up for three or four TVs, does a pay-per-view, and then gets back on the plane and heads to Saskatoon or whatever for however long. But honestly, the best thing for Roman Reigns and the WWE at this point, because he has no credible, competent challengers, should be to not see him wrestle all the time. But then... Because their roster is so shitty without Roman, uh, then the the pressure is on to uh, put Roman and any other big star they can get a hold of on a lot of these shows, and that just creates too much familiarity. If they had a roster like they've had in the past, where guys were actually over and there was more than two or three of them on each side, heel and babyface, then yeah, let's. Let's not let's not see a, a lot of Roman, but make it mean something when we do see. But uh, a lot of people think Roman, and he has said in the past that he had interest in Hollywood. Of course, he reshaped his jaw, redid his teeth. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but the word around at the time was he did that with the idea that in the future he'd like to do something in Hollywood. Well, at least he got a good doctor. He doesn't look like that woman that made herself look like a cat. See that that wouldn't be any good. That would if if can you imagine if Roman Reigns looked like a cat? That probably wouldn't. Yeah, I don't do know if that would work in the movies. But we saw The Rock go to Hollywood, kind of in the middle of his career, and we saw John Cena start picking up roles towards the middle, towards the end of his career. And now he's out there full time. If you're WWE, what do you think of this decision by Roman Reigns? If this is what he wants to do, if he does want to go to Hollywood and try to do something out there, and what are the pros and cons of it? How do you? take advantage of it and what if it doesn't work out well these are rumors at this point but you don't just decide i'm gonna go to hollywood and make movies even if you're roman reigns the rock 
if everybody will, it's been, God, it's been more than 20 years now, so maybe they don't remember. He got the role in The Scorpion King. It, it, it wasn't about him, right? But he just got a role in a, in a big movie, and that exposed him to a lot of those people and led to other people seeing him. And at the same time, he was one of the top two names in the, on the hottest show on television that was drawing five and six times the number of people that are watching it now and astronomical pay-per-view numbers and live event tickets being sold across the country everywhere in major NBA arenas. So yeah, that guy got to go to Hollywood. Roman is not nearly as hot, not nearly as over. I'm not even talking about talent or movie star look or whatever. I'm just talking about opportunity and whether it can materialize. He's not as hot. The business is not as hot. He's not as well known. I think he's very talented, but I don't know that he's as good with everything as The Rock has turned out to be. And is anybody going to give him that one role in a big movie that's a hit that doesn't have to ride on him, but to get him seen not only by the movie-going public, but also by the right people to put him in other movies? That's remains to be determined. So it ain't the same thing. I mean, you know, he looks like a guy you'd want to see in a movie, but we'll see what happens. But it's not going to be just that easy. A lot of people now think, well, yeah, Rock just went to Hollywood and started making movies. Every, Even with The Rock, and as hot as he was and as hot as the business was, everything had to happen the right way. And we probably have more wrestlers today than ever before that actually want to be in movies and see that as a reasonable outcome to their wrestling career. The, the, I love the way you phrased that. See it as a reasonable out, like it's a reasonable outcome of anything that after I finish doing this, I'll be a movie star. <laughs> exactly. Fuck. And then a double knot spy and then an astronaut. And I mean, you know, that's, a, and you can tell a lot of the guys and a lot of the girls, a lot of the girls admit it even more than the guys do. They get into wrestling business these days because they think they're going to get on TV, real TV or the movies or whatever. That's their reason for getting in wrestling. And I've mentioned that I had never, when I was asked to be a part of the wrestling business, which I never thought would actually happen. So I obviously, when you're a kid, when I was eight years old and I found the Tarzan Theater on fucking Saturday afternoons on WHAS here, I wanted to be Johnny Weissmuller. And then it was a TV series. I wanted to be Ron Ely. I liked Tarzan. And then... I liked the wild, wild west. I wanted to be a secret agent in the old west when I was seven years old or whatever. A lot of people want to do these things. But I, when I got in the wrestling business, TV, being on TV was a byproduct of being in the wrestling business. I had never thought for one second past like when you're a kid and you're going to make a movie and you're going to do this and that. I'd never legitimately, okay, I want to be on television. I want to be a newscaster. Or I want to be an actor. Or I want to be a, Whatever people do on time, I never legitimately thought that was a possibility past 
When I was when I was eight, I, I wanted to make my own Tarzan movie. Did I ever tell you this? Oh no, I'd love to hear this though. Well, you know, I sat there thinking I'm watching Tarzan on TV and I'm watching these Tarzan movies, and I know <laughs> we had my dad's eight millimeter movie camera. Because every once in a while, my mom would still get out the old home movies and pull out the projector and put it in front of the door there down in the downstairs and and uh, or pull out the, the screen, rather, and the projector and show the old movies. I'm thought, well, I've got a movie camera. Now I'm reading Famous Monsters of Filmland, too. I'm starting to read that. I'm starting to get into horror movies. And they're explaining the makeup. You know, they have star uh, stories on the famous makeup artists, and they're explaining how some of these films are shot. Now I'm starting to read movie books. So I'm thinking I could make a Tarzan movie. We got a camera. But like everything else, I was obsessed with the whole thing. I was very obsessive. So by the time that I had this thing figured out, I was going to be Tarzan. My best friend, Tommy, this was second grade, second or third grade. So my best friend, Tommy, was going to be the heel. And he had a little brother that could play all the other parts. My mother could be the cameraman because she's the one that knew how to run the camera. <laughs> and there was an article in Famous Monsters of Filmland on how you could learn film editing to make your own horror movies. So I'm thinking, well, then I had written part of a script <laughs> based on one of the Tarzan TV episodes. And then my mother had to sit down and say, okay, Jimmy, it's, it's very good. It's a good thing that you're this motivated. However, what you've just done here is created a situation. And she didn't use these, this verbiage, but she got the point across. You've created a situation here where I will have to take you and your friend and his brother out of school put them in a car because the location I wanted to use was where I'd gone to summer camp near Mont Eagle, Tennessee, because they had a waterfall, which a waterfall's in every Tarzan movie, right? So I would have to put you in the car along with a lot of rolls of eight millimeter film and this 20 year old movie camera and drive you all to Mont Eagle, Tennessee, which is near Chattanooga and about five hours away. And put us up in a hotel for days while you try to help your other eight, eight well, your, your eight-year-old friend and your six-year-old friend learn the lines from your script so we can shoot this movie. Then come back and buy the equipment necessary to edit it together. Maybe you ought to just work on writing. <laughs> she encouraged the writing. So, but I was going to make the move. Where was I going with Who that? was going to be Tarzan? Who's going to be I Tarzan? I was. So you're going to be I the... Get, if I write the movie, I get to star in it. You think you would have been a good Tarzan? Well, I would... I'd have been jumping off the top of that waterfall feet first. I wouldn't do one of those goddamn head first dives like they did in the movies. I'd have been cannonballing. And it was only about 12 feet anyway, the 12 foot waterfall. But it looked big when I was a kid. All right. Well, here's... So what were we talking about? I guess this is what Roman Reigns has to look oh, forward Roman to in Hollywood. Roman Reigns making movies. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't bet on it just yet. I'd I'd get a lot. I'd be the biggest star in the biggest wrestling promotion in the world for a while longer, and then and get as good a schedule and as much money as I could. And then I'd worry about making major motion pictures and sitcoms. All right. Well, let's get another question here, Jim. This one was sent to Courtney Drive Through at Gmail dot com from Big Andy in Louisville. 
I know Jim Cornette will never be a character on Young Rock, but who would you all imagine portraying him? So who would play you on TV, Jim? Oh, yeah. Well, most of these actors that they're getting to play the, the boys on Young Rock have never been heard of before, except for Colt Cabana. He's a big star everywhere. So would it be... <laughs> You laugh, you joke. Would it be a, a major name that would be playing me, or would it be some unknown? And that, if it's an unknown, that I'm going to go with, uh, you know, uh, Poultice McFly. He's a fine young man. I, I mean, who? This is the problem. Who looks like any of us? Nobody looks and acts like anybody in the wrestling business. That's why they have such trouble. Not only casting people to play the wrestlers in the wrestling business, but casting the people to, to play wrestlers in the wrestling business. Because nobody looks like wrestlers anymore. Who would be me? Somebody one time before he died, I guess he, didn't he die Philip Seymour Hoffman? Somebody said Philip Seymour Hoffman should play me. I didn't see it particularly. Well, he's a good character actor who could lose himself in a role, maybe some prosthetics and makeup. And glasses. Oh, wait a minute, what kind of goddamn prosthetics? What, is he going to have a hump on his back or a boil on his <laughs> neck or a fucking, a, some kind of fucking canker on his fucking cheek? What is he, has, what do I look like, Quasimodo? Well, he probably needs a wig and you have to apply other things to make the wig look seamless for a different hairline and he needs the he glasses. He probably needs more things now since he's fucking dead. Who would have been good? Don't you well, dare say John bed, Candy. Huh? I wasn't going to say John Candy. I don't know why your mind went there. Don't you dare <laughs> say John Maybe uh, Joe Flaherty, though. Who would play me? Who would be me? Who looks like me? Who acts like me? What version of you? How has it changed? I mean, is it young? You, is it a young guy? Or is it? That's what I'm know? asking you. How have I changed? Except for losing hair and the dark color of same. But still, and you I'm have lighter to... now than I was 40 years ago. <laughs> but you need an actor to play you at a certain point in time. Okay, but what? what <laughs> what's the difference? You had no. You can't just say it is no 20, 60. It's all the same. Just get it's anyone. all the same. I've got weight and hair <laughs> is the difference. Look at me. Wardrobe. Look at me, damn it! Look at me. What's the difference? <laughs> weight and hair in the last 40 years. Act same, talk same, look same, think same. Have the same clothes. Wearing the same glasses. So like Anthony Hopkins, you think would be good? Well, only if I was a fucking cannibalistic serial killer. And nobody knows about that. Sounds like a good fit. All right. Well, perhaps there are a lot of out-of-work actors who can't get, <laughs> can't get work portraying Jim Cornette on the silver screen. Maybe they need another trade, another skill. And of course, our fine friends at Code Academy can teach them that skill. Oh, they can teach you, boy. I'll tell you what, they can teach you because you've heard of the great resignation, Brian, right? That's where people are quitting. Their, they're saying, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. I'm not risking my life and putting up with all this preponderous bullshit just for the pittance, the pennies that I'm being paid. The mere pittance that I'm being compensated for. No, folks, you need to run your own life. And you need to find the right career. I won't even call it a job because you know what? When you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And with Code Academy training you how to be one of the minions that will soon rule the planet after the not only the great resignation, but then the 
the great flattening comes. That's where everything in the world suddenly gets flattened by these secret bots that have infiltrated. Oh, my God. I'm telling you. Enough already with the bots. More about this. More about this. The bots have infiltrated the interior core of the earth. We've seen it in all the movies. That's where all the mechanical stuff is that the aliens planted billions and billions of years ago that runs this planet. And once the Code Academy people have trained the bots and the lizard folks that live underneath the ground how to work all of our mechanical devices and all of our internets and interwebs, then there's going to be the great flattening where suddenly everything on the face of the planet gets flattened and the people living underneath in the core of the earth, they emerge and they take over. Folks, you can be part of this. Or if you just need a part-time job. There's never been a better time to become a programmer. With Code Academy, you can learn to code on your own terms, whether starting from scratch and you know absolutely nothing, like most of our listeners who know absolutely nothing, or if you're looking to advance, like certain social climbers in the wrestling business, Code Academy can help you reach your coding goals. You can learn at your own pace and get qualified for those in-demand jobs. You see people beating on the doors daily, demanding these jobs, but you'll get them because it's all a work and Code Academy's in on it. <clears throat> you can learn the many coding languages like Python, Hitomosis, Squall, and JavaScript. You know, you'd think they'd come up with a new language by now, like Lithuanian or Bosnian. But if you're not sure where to begin, folks, Code Academy will point you in the right direction, right to the end of the line. You gotta wait your turn. Code Academy, you can get instant feedback. Because your code is tested as soon as you submit it. And if the FBI cannot figure out what you're talking about, then you're flunked and you got to go back and write more code. If the FBI can figure out what you're talking about, you're going to be arrested because you know too much. You can build your portfolio, folks, and get a certificate of completion. And once you're completed, it's over. It's done. You're done. Land your dream job today, folks, in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons of other things. Join the over 50 million people learning to code with our friends at Code Academy and see where coding can take you. And now you'll get 15% off your Code Academy Pro membership at codecademy.com with the promo code experience. That's C O D E C A D E M Y.com. Promo code experience. Brian, I'm telling you, all of our, the listeners are so smart. They're so intelligent. I feel, I feel optimistic that when the, the great cataclysm goes down and we're all scavenging for, for grubs out of the ground to eat, the people that we have sent to Code Academy that are ruling over us will be beneficent, beneficent or beneficent beneficent rulers, and they'll take care of us. I have a feeling you and I will even be some of the favorite pets of the ruling class. I don't know about all that, but it's CodeCademy.com, promo code experience. Well, of course, Jim, Codecademy, a fine solution for people who are looking for a new trade, a new skill, or just looking for a way to protect planet Earth. But Jim, let's move on to some of the questions from the listeners here. We have a few, in case you haven't heard. 
This one was sent. I haven't heard. You don't tell me these things ahead of time. I have no knowledge of this. There are a lot of questions uh, every week sent in, thousands and thousands. Too many. And a lot from Charlie, actually. But That's why a, you just pick four from Charlie and say, fuck it. Well, you know, for the thousands that there are, a few hundred are from Charlie. But here's some questions. This one was sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Alec in Silicon Valley. Recently on The Experience, Jim mentioned that powerhouse Hobbs needs someone like Paul Heyman to guide him to maximizing his potential and avoid being taken advantage of. This made me think about how instrumental Heyman was in Brock Lesnar's early career. How do you think Lesnar's career might be different if he hadn't been managed by Heyman? Do you think Brock Lesnar would have been as misused as Hobbs is if he didn't have Heyman so early in his career? Well, no, he wouldn't have because he still was an NCAA champion and a highly recruited you know, developmental prospect and was catered to even in developmental, getting to go home when he wanted to and this and that. They had plans for him. I mean, look at him. He looked like, you know, Dick the Bruiser did in 1953 in his rookie year. So, you know, they they obviously, they'd, they'd paid him, what was it, 250 grand a year he was making in developmental or something like that. So they were obviously going to use him and going to push him from the start. Whereas poor Hobbs is in a company where there's no direction from the top because there's no top. There's Tony letting a lot of people do what they want to do, and he has no control over it. And there's no clear long-term, for all these people in long-term booking, there's no long-term. They don't know what the fuck's going to go on in six months. They think they do. And as we saw from Adam Page, you know, if they've decided on something and everybody's still there in two years, they they might do it anyway, even if it doesn't make sense. But no, Brock was scheduled for a push from the start. The difference was with Heyman there, Heyman could not only make sure that in, in his Heyman-esque way, if something was brought up in the match or in a promo or something that would not be something that Brock should do. Paul was smart enough to figure out a way to get it fucking tweaked, twiddled with, changed, whatever, so it it didn't impact Brock badly. Paul was also a guy that could be there at ringside to whisper things to him or talk to him before promos or go over matches afterwards, suggest things. That's the kind of hands-on I mean, that's stuff that producers would do or agents would do or bookers would do, but you're, it's like you've got your own because he's sitting right with you. And he's going to go out, and if, if, if you stink, he stinks too. So he doesn't want you to stink because he doesn't want to stink. And he knows it's going to be better for everybody to make money if this is... So you've got, like, your own concierge and that, you know, it, it, it was kind of like me and, and Big Bubba. Before, you know, when he was just a rookie and before he became boss man and, and had worked around the world and had gotten experience, you know, me and and to some extent, the Midnight were just in his ear or tweaking shit or, you know, Dusty was behind him also as Booker. So it's not like we had to politic for finishes or whatever, but the, because it was a green guy, there was things that he shouldn't do that. You wouldn't know he was going to do until he did them. And then you say, don't do that anymore. Or that thing you did tonight, do more of that. 
so that's kind of the help that somebody like Heyman can can be to a, a green guy with a ton of potential that's got a lot of physical tools. And what would Lesnar have been like without Heyman? Um, he still would have been pushed. He still would have been a top talent. He probably still would have, he was, as we've mentioned, wasn't really that dedicated to the business the first time around. He still would have probably done the things he did with trying to play pro football and blah, blah, blah. But he probably wouldn't be as good today as getting himself over at getting himself over as he is. He probably wouldn't have been as good at getting himself over in the UFC because it's the same thing that Heyman would have been teaching him a lot of the things that he could have used in the UFC. I'm not talking about in the octagon. I'm talking about as far as his personality and getting over and the way he's presented. You know, that's universal in any kind of combat sport, whether worked or shoot. So I think that probably he would have still been in the spot, but he's a much more all-around better performer and better worker the way he thinks about things and approaches things now because of his time with Paul. Our next question, Jim, sent the Courtney drive through at gmail.com from Ron D in Western Pennsylvania. Hi, Jim and Brian. I am new to the podcast and I, you know, when they, when they write to you, they always mention your name. Well, I think they know who reads the drive through emails. Yeah. Smart. Hi, Jim and Brian. I am new to the podcast, and I love it. I know who Shitstain is, but who is Excrement? <laughs> I get it as someone in AEW. Thanks. You use the nickname so often that some of the new listeners don't even know who you're talking about. I'm sorry, we should put out a glossary, maybe something on the website. But uh, Excrement is also known as, a.k.a., as they say in the business, Excalibur. He's known as Excalibur to himself, his immediate family, and three of his pets. Otherwise than that, nobody knows who the fuck Excalibur was. He claims he was a wrestler at one point. That's arguable. He's been in a ring. But to the modern-day audience on television, he's known as excrement because that is the classification that his commentary goes under. Well, we have an email here from another new listener. Let's go to this one. This was sent to Courtney Drive Through at gmail.com from Jay in Atlanta. Hello, Jim and Brian. I love the podcast. I'm a relatively new listener, so I'm sorry if this has been discussed before. I was wondering if you could tell me what circumstances determine when a wrestler gets a manager. Is it typically just someone who needs help on the mic? Or are there other reasons? Does the wrestler have a say? Or is it simply an order handed down from above? Also, do established managers get to pick who they work with? Um, uh, All of the above at various points in time. I mean, there's no set standard. In the territory days, generally there was a local manager that was, and a great example is Bobby Heenan, the time he spent either in Indianapolis working for Bruiser, or in the AWA working for Vern Gagne. He was established. He was over in that territory. So any top heels that came in to the territory generally joined Heenan's family. And then they had automatic heat. If they were a big name, 
like Bachwinkle, then they had to, you know, plenty of heat. But if they were a nobody, but they, and I don't want to say it, if, if nobody knew them in that territory, they were brand new, but they were with Heenan, they had to be good. They had to be, well, they had to be bad. They had to be bad guys. So they automatically were seen by the fans as, as top attractions. Sometimes, yes, you find a guy that just can't talk, but if, if a you put him with a manager, then you've got that licked. And if they work well together, you got a great combination. Sometimes, you know, the, the combination in the territory days would be booked. When they booked the Midnight Express and me, it was a package deal. You want one, you get all of us. In some cases, uh, like the interns in Ken Ramey or the Von Brauners and Saul Weingeroff, the manager would be part of the the team or the the pairing and they would go everywhere with that talent. They would give their notice at the same time and they would get booked to the same place going forward because they knew that they worked together well and were able to draw money with the right opponents. So they wanted to stay together. You know, other times, Gary Hart, who was also a booker a lot as a manager, may have said, I want to manage that guy because I... You know, he's a foreign menace or he's a spooky guy or he fits my my genre that I like to manage. So he would pick a guy. Other times, you know, if, if, if I managed Mantar once, right? And it was a rib, yes, but they told me, hey, you're going to go out with so-and-so. You know, other times I've been told on the sperm of the moment, hey, we're going to put you with Dr. Death when me and the Midnight were baby faces in 89 in WCW or hey. Murdoch's here. We're going to put you with Murdoch. That was fun. So it it just depends on what the situation is. There's no one, you know, answer to that question. It it's it just depends on who the particulars are and what the context is. All right, Jim. Our next question sent to Corny Drive Through at Gmail dot com is from. Trying to see if there's a name here. There's no name attached. Oh, RJ in Sacramento. Well, you doesn't got to call him RJ. Here's RJ's question. Greetings, Jim and Brian. First time emailer, long time listener. Recently, you guys brought up topic. I guess I think it means the topic. Brought up the topic of successful and unsuccessful second generation wrestlers. Referencing Randy Orton, Double J, and the children of Jerry Lawler. Recently, I discovered Tito Santana has a daughter that's currently training to wrestle, but she wasn't raised with him or around the business, as it took a DNA test to prove he was her father. Where where does this news come from? I'm going to go look this up while we're asking this question. My question is, has any other wrestlers, quote-unquote, road kids, kids born outside of their known marriage, attempted to get into the business? Uh, let's see i am trying to think with the i got an article right here may 6th so this is just a couple days ago on wrestling inc they never get anything wrong but here's their story the daughter this is written by matthew carlins let's give him credit the daughter of WWE Hall of Famer Tito Santana is making some inroads into the world of professional wrestling. Jenny Santana says she only recently confirmed that the former WWE Intercontinental and Tag Team Champion is her father. Here's a quote 
from Wrestling Epicenter. I only found out a few years ago that he is my biological father. I was already into martial arts heavily. So I guess she has proven with a DNA test that he is her father. And, and, and bless him, just in time for Mother's Day. I don't know. Uh, so if that's the case, then yes, she's technically second generation wrestler, but she wouldn't have any of the... The, uh, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, the, 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 what's the word I'm searching for? Help me. Any of the benefits that, that could work. The benefits of being a second generation wrestler, if she wasn't around the business, wasn't around her father and didn't know anything about it until just a few years ago. So she may be good on her own, but there's no benefit that came from that. And I was trying to think with the exception of the old story, which has kind of been shot down, that Gino Hernandez was Paul Bosch's illegitimate son instead of the son of, of um, oh God, what was his? Charles Wolf. Charles, well, his, his Gino's name was Charles Wolf, but what was his, what was the wrestler that was supposed to be his father? And by the way, you say it was shot down. I don't, I mean, his mother now says there's no way, but I still don't think it was shot down. She shot it down. She shot it down, but also it just it seems like I don't know. I I haven't I've I've been on the fence about it before, but of late I'm like I think it, Paul was just doing a service for this kid that was a uh, the the son of a f old friend of his. And what was his father's name? The wrestler that was supposedly Gino's father. God damn it. Can't remember. But anyway, nevertheless, besides that, can you think of anybody that was the legitimate, I can't believe I'm about to say this, the legitimate, illegitimate offspring of a wrestler that got into business and got to be a name? I can't think of one. Can't think of it. And if it's happened, it may not have been publicized as much well i'm not saying publicized but i'm even thinking about in the locker room it's not exactly the same thing but vince mcmahon right vince Help McMahon, me? vince mcmahon senior had a whole separate life without vince mcmahon jr in it and then all of a sudden one day he was oh, in okay it. I, see, I see i see what you're saying but well but then he it was what was he vince 15 so that was the formative years he kind of got a little bit of an idea but then he worked in the business afterwards here's a bigger question is there anyone in wrestling today that has a wrestler father they don't know about hmm well there's no way to answer that question is there because yeah, we don't know either no one knows but, but it would be interesting dna for everybody Right. Well, let's stay on the topic. Maybe of, they could teach that at Code Academy. What DNA? Yeah. Maybe. I, not only could we read it, but maybe we could make some. Then oh. fuck, I could I could be related to a goddamn multi-billionaire and and file some kind of suit. All right. Well, let's get our next question here before they file a suit against us. This is any any Code Academy graduates that we have put you onto this and you're successful now contact us and figure out a way to manufacture some DNA. Hook me up with a multi-billionaire. That's not how this works. This next question, Jim, was sent to corny drive through at gmail.com from Jacob in Evansville, Indiana. 
You know, they do call DNA a genetic code, so I'm just saying. Go ahead, Evansville. Hello, Brian and Jim. I was wondering what your thoughts are regarding the rumors going around of Bray Wyatt's retirement. Does AEW and being a part of the Pudding Gang not interest him? Thank you and best wishes. Well, the the fiend trended on Twitter here the other day because somebody, one of the announcers said, is that the fiend in the front row on one of the shows? Was it Backlash? It was McAfee. Yeah, there was a guy in a fiend mask and McAfee said, is that the fiend in the front row? And all of a sudden the commentary went silent right after that for a minute. (laughs) Um... I've, you know, people want to know where he is. I have no idea why. I have no idea why anybody is interested in the fiend after the Firefly Funhouse and the the crispy critter from Canyon Creek got burned alive and all that hocus pocus science fiction horror movie mumbo jumbo, the most insulting, rotten, embarrassing, fake, phony, bad bullshit I've ever seen in wrestling. And they still want to know, where is he and when's he coming back? If he wants to retire, I'm all in favor of it. I might have liked the guy, but when when I saw The Fiend, nah. So, I mean, I guess he made fairly decent money for a few years there. He was on top and he was selling merchandise out the ass, right? So he made a lot of money for a few years. And I think from what I've heard, that's part of the problem is he expects to make that money going forward. And I don't know if the value is there for anyone outside of WWE and WWE doesn't see the value right now. Well, that's, I was going to say that should be, it should have eliminated the problem unless he's got the problem. He thinks that's going to continue. If he's made a lot of money over the past several years, he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And if I was him, and I, I don't know how old he is, I'd retire too and say, fuck it. With the fucking booking that I've endured the last however long I was there. But if he but expects he any... Well, then in that case, he's, I guess, a, pretty much an idiot. But if he expects anybody to pay him, including the WWE, to pay him what they were paying him, and or, you know, anything close to that, he's out of his ever-loving fucking mind. So he either needs to figure out what else he wants to do and move on with his life with millions of dollars in his bank account or adopt a more realistic attitude toward how the fact that, what do you do to a guy in a wrestling business after you fucking burned him alive on national television? He's pretty much done. He's going to have to start over somewhere doing something if he wants to stay in a wrestling business and nobody's going to give him seven figures a year to start over and do something different. And the fiend would be roundly booed out of the building in AEW, the fiend presentation, right? Maybe the guy, Bray Wyatt, they'd love him. But they can't do the fiend. The fans wouldn't like it, and they don't have the budget. They ain't going to pay Bray Bray Wyatt millions of dollars a year to try something from scratch. So he's in a little bit of a pickle. He's like Bob Denver after Gilligan's Island. Had a heck of a run, but now everybody thinks you're fucking Gilligan. Ain't a lot of call for any more Gilligans. And the other thing is with AEW... If he came in there and did a spooky shit, they already got a spooky kickboxing guy <laughs> in his little group, so that wouldn't really go over. 
Well, yeah, and they've already got somebody on the other channel doing the House of Black gimmick better. Now they're going to bring in somebody in the same company to do the House of Black gimmick better. Because anything has to be better than the House of Black gimmick. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It will be interesting. I mean, is this the end of Bray Wyatt? Because he made a lot of money. If he expects to make that much money to come back, who's going to pay him? And then who's going to be in charge of the booking? Is this the end of Little Rico? This next question, Jim, sent to corny drive through at gmail.com is from Ryan. Back when kayfabe was still upheld, wrestlers went to great lengths to protect the business. I've heard many stories on the drive through and the experience describing such lengths. But I was curious if that extended to funerals. Were they private enough that it usually didn't matter? Did anyone ever take it that far? Or were the wrestlers simply old enough or retired by that point that it wouldn't be noticed? So kayfabing uh, funerals, Jim, what are your thoughts? Did it happen and when? Well, it obviously did happen. You know, I'm not going to, okay, well, the notes I took at so-and-so's funeral and, and indicates that so-and-so were here. Yes, it's happened and it's not happened. It depends on who was involved. I personally... Have kayfabed every wrestling funeral because, except for Bobby Eaton's, I haven't been to any, which goes along with all the other funerals that I haven't been to in my life. Bobby Eaton's was the the first person that wasn't an actual close blood relative that I ever went to a funeral in my life, except for one other time, and I won't even mention the person, but it was the a person that was a loved one of a person that I knew and liked. So I've been to like six in my life. One every 10 years. So in some cases, yes, it wouldn't be right, especially in the territory days, for a guy to show up, you know, if there were fans in, around or just whatever. In other cases, that was something that, you know, well, you still had to go. I don't know whether Ron Wright went to Whitey Caldwell's funeral. That would have been the big test. And then again, a lot of the, until modern times, if you're going to a wrestler's funeral, he either was killed in a car wreck or he was old and retired. And so, you know, the retirement and et cetera, then it became more of a cauliflower alley club thing and not guys that were actively on television trying to cut each other's heads off, you know, going to the funeral. Uh and then in, in modern times, it hasn't made as much of a difference. But we'll recall again the story in Brian Solomon's book, Blood and Fire, that's on sale. I think still on back order because everybody tried to get their copy. The Sheik's funeral service, the preacher actually gave his real name, given name one time at the beginning and called him Sheik thereafter. There was an element of Cape Fabe in even in the funerals back then. So it it just, again, it depended on who it was, where it was, what it was, how public it was, and what everybody's mindset was at the time over what had happened. When I was younger, I always really, I don't want to say I really liked to watch because that sounds kind of morbid, but I always found it intriguing to watch footage of David Von Erich's funeral service. Not inside, there was no cameras there that I saw, but the outside, all the fans lined up and you'd see Ric Flair show up. Yeah. And that was always interesting, but to me, that wasn't busting kayfabe. It was almost like, yeah, I'm the NWA world champion. Yeah, I'm a heel, but I'm a professional athlete, and this is the right thing to do. And I think it kind of worked in that way. 
And and of course, there the Fritz and and everybody in those days wanting to get the most out of everything. Uh, that's why they shot it because look, my boy, our brother, whatever the, you know the the Von Erich family has such power and prestige and respect in the wrestling business that all the dignitaries came in from, you know, Flair came representing the NWA World Championship and. Uh, who was there from Japan? Somebody was there. I'm trying to remember who, but point is, it was a worldwide thing, and a sh- and it made the, my God, the, the coverage. I wasn't in Dallas yet, uh, when, when uh, David died, but the TV was, you know, being syndicated at that point, and inside the business we heard about it, but you saw the clips, the footage of. Thousands of people outside the funeral home, just like thousands of people had jammed the switchboard, the front page of the Dallas Times Herald and the whole nine. It was huge news. So everybody, that was a thing that was bigger than just kayfabe in a territory and, and a local guy passed away. That was Dallas stopped for that. And so everybody was, they weren't thinking about kayfabe. It was an international you know, gathering on the death of a, could have been a fucking statesman or politician. It wouldn't have got that much attention. It was almost like the news media had to catch up to what was actually happening on the street. They didn't realize just how big the Von Erichs were at that moment, especially with a young yeah, audience. That's that's when they all figured out in, in Dallas, the, the TV stations, the radio stations, the newspapers, because for the first day or two, I think at, at first it didn't even get covered and then it got a little blurb. And then they started noticing, well, the hospital's hiring security and shutting their phones down, and there's people in the fucking streets, and there's there flower bouquets and people crying at the mall for no apparent reason. What's going on? Oh, shit, it was a wrestler? And then the floodgates opened with the fucking publicity. Jim, several listeners have sent in... I don't know if I'd call it a question, but sent in an email. I guess they received a survey from AEW about an upcoming new television show. Did you see this? I've heard about it, but I've not delved into the survey in depth. Here's the description of the show. AEW's top performers are ushering in a new behind-the-scenes wrestling series like no other. Every episode will track our core cast on the road at AEW events as they try to hold on to the titles they have or win back the ones they've lost, with everything culminating at the biggest pay-per-view event of the year. They all hope to walk away champions, but there aren't enough belts for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about the wrong promotion here. (laughs) Tony has enough belts for everybody. But anyway, heroes will rise, villains will fall, champions will be crowned. And with more access, more star power, and more drama than ever before, We'll see it all through the eyes of the biggest names in the company. So that's the description. The survey wanted the thoughts on a name for the show. So, Jim, I'm going to give you this list. Let me know what you think will be the best name for this behind-the-scenes look at AEW, which I'm going to assume will be replacing what would have been the roads to the top time slot. Right? Right. Here's the list. Fight to the finish. Breakout. The Climb. To the Mat. The Climb? The Climb. 
to the mat. Uprise. Friends and enemies. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Friends and enemies? To the top. What about frenemies? All access. On the ropes. That's never been done. On the ropes. Grit and glory. And road to the belt. Do any of those names stick out to you, Jim? Yeah, like a sore thumb, like a screen door on a submarine. Uh, that sounds like the shit that we would get from creative services when Vince would call the office and they'd send back names like Chili McFreeze and Ice Dagger. Uh, what is the, if the name of the, it's like picking the perfect name for the book that you don't know how to write. How's that going to help you? The name of the show is the least amount of their trouble. The content on the show or in the show is that's the issue. I, d- I don't see the name being any, uh, being any great ratings grabber. What are your thoughts on an AEW behind the scenes documentary series or reality? I show? thought that's what they were doing right now. They tell us right now on their regular television program, we're all friends. This is all fake. And we're just pretending with their little smirks and their bad comedy and their preposterous scenarios and the shit they do. That's obvious that no human being would ever do that. So that's behind the scenes. Hey, yeah, we're a bunch of phony fuckers. So even more behind the scenes would be more like, Remember Cody's reality show where he was congratulating everyone for beating up their hated enemy in a convincing fashion while they hugged and kissed each other. That would be what AEW considers behind the scenes because they're goddamn motor mouse and they can't fucking not kayfabe. They can't kayfabe anybody. They they have to not kayfabe because then if they kayfabed, people wouldn't know that they're fabulous thespians they just think they're pro wrestlers who wants to be that jim our next question was sent to corny drive through gmail.com trying to see if there's a name here there's no name attached to this email a lot of these people wanting to remain anonymous hey jim and brian love the show love you guys recently i've just moved out of my parents into my own apartment while super young 23, I can recognize names thanks to you and Brian talking about them so much. When I mentioned to my elderly neighbor that I was a wrestling fan, (laughs) elderly neighbor, she admitted that she was a waitress down in Chattanooga in the early 70s. She mentioned to me that she was attracted to him, yet never acted, but would always leave decent tips. She's referring to Jerry Jarrett. (laughs) But the main thing was... She would say how Jerry would walk in the front of a bunch of wrestlers, bringing them in for food, be a big tipper, and would be sitting by himself writing on napkins. <laughs> One of the other wrestlers, only referred to as Jay, which I imagine is Chief Jay Strongbow, probably what? not. No. No. Would say it was travel plans for the next show. But I imagine Jerry was booking these shows in the restaurant after the show that night had happened. I'm curious to know if the timeline matches up, if Jerry would frequent diners at this time, and if Jerry or other bookers 
were known to write down plans on napkins. If he did, I wish I still had some of those napkins. Well, I'm trying to think who Jay was in the early 70s in the Tennessee Territory. I don't know. There was actually a baby face at one time named Jay Clayton. He also worked for Leroy McGurk, but nevertheless. And, and the reason we shot down Jay Strongbow was because. He never worked there. No. Never worked there as Jay Strongbow, ever. Well, and, and not in the early 70s at all. In the maybe early 60s, he worked Chattanooga as Joe Scarpa, but nevertheless. Anyway, if this was, there was a, and I'm trying to think, there was a buffet, an all-you-can-eat buffet in Chattanooga that the boys used to go to. And it was still there in, in the early 80s when I was down there in the summer of 83. And I'm trying to think what the name of it was, and I can't, but for the purpose of this, it wasn't a diner, but there are no real diners in Chattanooga because diner is a Northeast thing. The writer may have just used that terminology, but if it was that all-you-can-eat buffet, that sounds right because what they do is they do television and then they'd go to the buffet and get something to eat, and then they'd go to the house show that night. And I would think that since Jerry was not only one of the top baby faces at that point, and if he was in Chattanooga, this is before he split off from Nick, because Nick kept Chattanooga. So I'm thinking the years are, you know, early, mid-70s. Uh, chances are Jerry was writing down potential finishes and or what the fuck for the house show that night after they'd got out of television. But that's entirely believable. And the only thing not necessarily believable is that, well, I, if Jerry was tipping for himself, that may have been one thing. But I don't know if he was tipping for the whole group of the boys. What about Booker's writing down notes on napkins at a restaurant or diner? Well, is it is it Tuesday? That's I mean, that's not unusual. <laughs> My God, that's what hey, people have told me. Heyman pretty much had every ECW television that he ever did written out on the backs of scrap envelopes and pieces of paper shoved in his pocket. Danny Davis told me that when he was doing OVW, that he would just pull out notes and scraps and shit, and he'd just want them to shoot everything and then put it together afterwards, which was the exact opposite of what Danny and I did. So, yeah, Booker's... I've, I write everything on multiple pieces of paper and kinds of paper, whatever. Also, I just correlate it all before I get to show it to anybody. But, but yeah, that's nothing unusual. That's almost exactly what Jerry was doing. He, he, he wasn't writing letters to the goddamn editor. All right. Well, if Jerry was sitting there in the diner in Chattanooga taking notes, and perhaps he didn't want to be disturbed by all the wrestlers. Maybe he could have listened to some music with some earbuds that stay in his ear while he listened to that music you know what the problem with that is don't you brian they didn't have earbuds in 1973 but in 2022 they got earbuds coming out of your ass also your ears but you know what won't come out of your ass or your ears is raycons because the raycon wireless earbuds will not fall out of your ears no matter what you do we've talked about the many things you can try to do to people it won't knock the raycons out of their ears it also the price will not come out of your ass because the Raycons, you get the same quality audio as the other premium brands, but at half the price. Folks, again, these things are so comfortable and they will not fall out. They got three sound profiles so you can match what you're listening to 
whether it's rock or rap or talk or whatever the case, they've also got the noise isolation and awareness mode settings. So you can either choose to be isolated in sound or to be able to hear your surroundings when you want to, not when your wife is around, but when there is an oncoming train beating down upon you. And you throw in the eight hours of playtime, the 32 hours of battery life. Holy shit for brains, you've got something here that you don't want to lose. The Everyday Earbuds with 49,000 five-star reviews. And right now, if you go to buyraycon.com, that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N, buyraycon.com slash J-C-E, you'll get 15% off. Not just one pair, not yet anything. Buy anything at buyraycon.com slash J-C-E, and you're going to get 15% off. I would get five of each if I were you, but that's just me. What about you? I would probably get at least six of them. Well, in that case, I'll get seven. It wasn't a competition. I have multiple people. I have multiple people who need them. Well, I'll find some people and hand them out. Who? You know, these things, have you heard about how the Raycons last? They're so durable. They're built to last. You've heard stories about a rake, a set of Raycon wireless earbuds falling three stories. And once the mortician dug them out of the guy's ears, they still worked. You can get them lost in the rain. You can leave them out in a snowstorm. They will still work. You'll be in bad shape. Chances are they'll be doing some sad singing and slow walking over you. But the Raycons will be fine. So you can remember to leave your Raycons to somebody in your will because they're going to outlive you, especially if you put them too deep in your ears. That causes brain damage. But that's hard to do. You really have to try. Go to buyraycon.com slash JCE right now. Right 15% now. 15% off That's right. while you're still alive. You'll be alive and for a while, hopefully. Stay away from the edge of the balcony if you're up more than two stories. All right, let's get another question in here before you... Cause someone to have an accident or something. Jim, this next one was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Doug Matthews in Dacula, Georgia. Is that how you pronounce that? Dacula. Dacula. Spelled like Dracula without the R, so I thought that. It, it is. It's hard to believe that it has been 20 years already since we lost Pee Wee Anderson. Huh. He definitely was a part of my childhood and one of my favorite refs. I know Jim has shared Pee Wee stories before but they never get old. Can he share one of his favorites? Oh, God. Um, well, I'm afraid I've told him all before, and it will bore some of the longer-time listeners, but Pee Wee Anderson, um, I met him when we went to Mid-South, and he was friends with Arn Anderson, and had, had uh, he had wrestled some. That's why Pee-wee, little Pee Wee was a shooter. Even Watts' referees were shooters. But he had wrestled some in school, and so he was a bit of an amateur. But he was, God, five foot four, 125 pounds or what? He was smaller than Brian Hildebrand. But he was a salty little bastard, and it made the boys look bigger, and he, he got to be a, a really good referee. And he went from Mid-South, and he was in the business for several years in a variety of places. And then, unfortunately, all the territories closed up, and... I don't know. I don't know exactly. Did did he? He got the job in WCW, but he he was 
he was out of the business maybe for a year or two when the territories closed up. And then he got the spot in WCW and he was there for quite a while. But anyway, great guy. And another guy that got like Brian Hildebrand, he got cancer and died at a ridiculously early age. And that just seems so coincidental, but Pee Wee was the guy that, you know, dog made him his, chauffeur and and gopher and and companion and compatriot and sometimes because peewee was a little less high profile than dog was in public that peewee could go out and get a few things done that dog wanted him to do and they spent a lot of time together and it was a it was a great spot dogs making thousands of dollars a week in mid-south 40 years ago and all peewee has to do is you know, drive his car his rolls royce around or no he didn't have the rolls royce he had the mercedes watts had the rolls royce but all he had to do was drive his car around and take care of dog and dog paid for everything. So that was a good spot, but he was a good referee. Didn't mind taking bumps and, you know, was great to be around in the locker room. And the most famous story was that time he went to that bar in Alexandria with Dr. Death and Hercules Hernandez. One would think one would be safe with that you know, crowd accompanying you, but Doc and Herc get into a fight and everybody couldn't wait to tell the story the next day. I think it was at TV or wherever we were at, where basically Dr. Death and Hercules had decided, okay, we're going to beat up the whole bar, even the people that weren't fucking with us. And while they're beating people up and throwing people through the air, Pee Wee got up on the top of the bar standing up on the bar, stripped his fucking shirt off and starts doing the Hulk Hogan fucking pose on the bar while Doc and Herc are destroying everybody. And after that, all the boys wanted to see him do the fucking pose. But anyway, um, but yeah, Pee Wee was, he was a lot of fun. I, you know, a, just a great guy and, and had, you know, a, a great demeanor for the wrestling business. He was like, I don't care as long as I get my check. Here we go. So I can't think of a stunning story right now that we haven't related before, but Pee Wee was a nice guy. Hey, let's uh, play a game for a few minutes. Let's have some fun here. Oh, golly. Because this sucks so far. <laughs> I have a gym right here in my hand, an original Gordon Soley Championship Wrestling Trivia board game. Uh-oh. The game of pro wrestling, including 1,200 trivia questions for fans of all ages. Have you played this game before? No. What year was that game manufactured? Uh, hold on. Let me see if it's on the bottom of this. It's not. Is there a copyright anywhere? It has, um, to, be the, has to be the 70s, if not earlier. Oh, right? no, no, no. This is the 80s. No? This is the 80s. It's the 80s? Uh, 1987. From what company? 1987 Sports Entertainment International. Even then, Sports Entertainment International, Inc. I have never heard of those people, and one would have thought that Gordon was on the... Was Gordon on television regularly by that point? In 87, he? he was still doing TV for Ron Fuller, probably. And whatever was still left of Florida, because 87 is when Crockett took it over. Yeah, so not at his highest viewership level. And pro wrestling, you game out. And pro wrestling this week, he was doing actually. Right. With Pettacino. Well, what are some of these questions? Well, I'm looking at it here. There are three topics or four topics: H, G, 80s, and TF. 
Uh, TF, TF appears to be like fill in the blank. For instance, Lord Alfred blank. <laughs> Hayes. Correct. G, I'll ask you this G question. Let's try to figure out what G is. Which fearsome wrestler was once a ballroom dancing instructor? God. Uh, that's not Ricky Starr. He was a ballet dancer. I wouldn't call him fearsome. I wouldn't call him fearsome. Uh, ballroom dancing. I am. I am stumped. Ox Baker. (laughs) I and assuming that these are legitimate, which one would think if Gordon lent his name to it, they would be. That that's that's out of nowhere. So that's G. H. What does that have to do with G, though? I don't know. That's what we have to figure out. Are there rules of this game printed on the box? Let me see. I don't know if I have rules in this thing. Is it or is it like the wrestling promotions of today? No rules. Trying to find it. I didn't think about opening all this on air. The fuck? Well, goddamn! Don't blame me if you're not prepared. I found the rules. Oh, found the rules. Oh, they came with a record, too. A message from Gordon on vinyl. Hold on. Let me put <laughs> <this>. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, the rules, let's see what these are. Okay, H is wrestling history. Okay. G is general wrestling knowledge. Okay. 80s is wrestling of the 80s. Okay. And TF is true, false, or fill-in. Well, now it all becomes clear. Now it all becomes clear. Let's finish this one card here. As, as Mama Cornette used to say, when all else fails, read the instructions. Under the history category, Jim, what was Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's match of the year in 1972? See, that's a trick question right there. Whoa, wait, whoa, ho. What Pro Wrestling Illustrated's match of the year in 1972? Trick question. Pro Wrestling Illustrated wasn't published until 1979. That's right. <laughs> That's the answer to the question? No, the answer to the question is Bruno San Martino wins the 22-man battle royal. In Los Angeles, I assume they're referring to. Of course they are. That was, the, that was the cover story in The Wrestler. Pro Wrestling Illustrated had not been started as a title yet. Here's another card. Who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Manager of the Year in 1979? That would have been the... Well, now wait a minute. 79 was the first year for the magazine, but would they have had uh, awards for the year that quickly? Is that another trick question? Who was the first manager of the year for Pro Wrestling Illustrated? Well, listed for 1979 is Arnold Skoland. You know what? That may be legitimate. Because at that remember, at that time, Skoland was managing Bob Backlund. Here's a question under general wrestling history. Which wrestler was stabbed with a fishing knife by a 79-year-old 112-pound wrestling fan in Pasadena, California? Oh, in Pasadena, was that Tolos or Blassie? The Mummy. The Mummy, Benji Ramirez. That's right. The Mummy. That's right, because the story... And we've seen the newspaper clips in the old distant past, but that was the, he got some kind of, did he not some kind of blood poisoning and took quite a bit of time off from wrestling over that? That sounds about right. I didn't realize it was a 79-year-old, 112-pound woman. 
who did it, but that was the way the wrestling business worked back then. I, th- I well, I thought it was an old man, but that was that was Ole Anderson in Greenville. That guy was seventy something years old, but it was a guy. I was going to say, who was the most fearsome member of the audience back then? Do you think is it the old lady? Is it the old man? Is it the guy not saying or reacting to anyone? What do you think? It's it's the old man. It's it's either the drunk younger man or the old man that's not saying anything to anybody. Um, women with umbrellas, purses, the occasional hat pin, whatever. But normally, that's the first time I can remember a woman stabbing a wrestler. It's it was always usually a guy and an older guy because old men had more of a habit of, especially down south, of carrying a knife in their pocket, and that was just something that guys did, especially down south years ago. So, Jim, fill in the blank. Captain Lou Blank. <laughs> Klein. <laughs> oh, very close, very close. Which wrestler is known as the Boogie Woogie Man? Woo, Missy Baby is handsome, Jimmy. Fill in the blank, Gorilla Blank. Oh, for heaven's sake, Gorilla Watts. Uh, you know what? You they should never get a point. You should get a point for that. See there? Which wrestler won the Collegiate Eastern Championship while a member of the Syracuse University wrestling team? Syracuse, well, if it was the 60s he was talking about Syracuse, it would have been Dick Byer the Destroyer. But since he's talking about Syracuse in the 80s, is it Rotunda? Mike Rotunda, that is the correct answer. Who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Manager of the Year in 1978? Okay, goddammit, there wasn't one. (laughs) Hold on, it's everyone. Hold on, I'm looking at these in order. Yeah, this is card 75, so okay. Who's the winner at 78? Arnold Skolem. Who's the winner at 77? The Grand Wizard. Who's the winner at 76? Every one of these cards starts with this question. 76, Bobby Heenan. And again, it was the the after magazines. London Publishing had the wrestler and inside wrestling if they were given those awards, but the Pro Wrestling Illustrated as a magazine didn't exist. So that that's that's confusing. Yeah, some of these are weird questions, just because how are you supposed to really this six foot six four You think we get weird questions here? This six foot six, four hundred and fifty pound wrestler was first managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Name him. Well, you're not talking about gang was in Florida, right? You got, wow, you actually got it. You got it right away. One man gang. Well, but he didn't weigh 450. How much did he weigh? He was up there. To, by that time, he was at that point, yeah. almost 400. But, you know. Fill in the blank. What's 50 pounds, I guess? Fill in the blank, Jim. Antonino blank. <laughs> Rocka. Rocka, baby. Rockefeller. Name the wrestling term used to describe any illegal weapon or material used unfairly in a match. A foreign object. That is correct. Otherwise known as an international object under herd (laughs) rule. What is the reported value of Antonio Inoki's platinum robe worn on his 25th anniversary into the sport? Oh, good God. I, I remember seeing a picture a long time ago, but I have no idea. $425,000. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. True or false, Jim? The NWA- I'm not, Inoki had the money, but whether he'd spend it on a robe, I'm not sure. The NWA Championship can change hands if the challenger wins the only fall in a two out of three falls match. True or false? False. That is correct. 
What equestrian device dangled from the neck of Haystacks Calhoun? <laughs> the equestrian device of a horseshoe. <laughs> That's the way Vince McMahon would say it now. Yeah, An equestrian yeah. device. <laughs> We're not allowed to get that horse a horseshoe. We've got to get him an equestrian device and then take him over to the metallurgists instead of the blacksmiths. Hey, where do you stand on the argument about haystack versus haystacks? Haystacks Calhoun, the plural, was, to me, not only uh, written more often or, or, you know, he was billed that way more often, but also it just sounded a little more smoother off the tongue. Yes, I know that there's only one of him, and he was big as a haystack, which is why that he was originally named Haystack Calhoun. But haystacks just seemed like it flowed better. And then the boys would call him Stacks. Name the two wrestling-related occupations Buddy Colt held after his retirement from wrestling. Wrestling-related occupation. He was an announcer. That's one. Commentator. Commentator. And he was a promoter. Well, they wouldn't do that on this card. Oh, well, they wouldn't do that on this uh, matchmaker. Did they? Referee. Did they, refer, okay, referee. They did, Yeah, but he also ran some towns too but they wouldn't have revealed that jim true or false death matches are sanctioned by the nwa that is false that is false that is correct they are not sanctioned at all because the promoter the promoters didn't want to be liable in case somebody got hurt the AEW's done lights out matches but their death matches are technically sanctioned right <sighs> sanctioned tolerated you know, get turned a blind eye to. I don't know what how you'd phrase that. You have a waist cinch on your opponent while you stand behind him. Your opponent reverses the move. What is this called? A go-behind. Standing switch. Okay. Same thing. True or false, NWA sanctions chain matches. False. Correct. False. What is the maximum number of falls possible in a two out of three falls match? <laughs> uh, and the answer is Grant is buried in Grant's tomb. True or false? Members of the same family cannot compete together in a battle royal. That's false. Let's see if you know this based on what was actually booked that year. Who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Inspirational Wrestler of the Year in 1980? Oh, I remember this. Uh, there And th that one's legitimate. There was a Pro Wrestling Illustrated Inspirational Wrestler in 1980. And what the hell did he do to inspire people? I'm trying to remember. Well, can I give you a clue? Yes, please. Because to me, this is one that actually is really interesting just based on the significance of this person getting the award at this time. It was one of the biggest gates and houses of the year and of its era. Bruno. No. No? Well, shit. Uh, dog. Junkyard dog. Junkyard dog to come back from the blinding and defeat the evil Michael Hayes in the Superdome. What I was saying was interesting about this is really think about it. An African-American wrestler from Mid-South Wrestling, which we all love it now, but it was, you know, 1980? They didn't even have Oklahoma yet as part of the territory. 
No, in, in 1980, it, the territory was Louisiana, part of Mississippi, part of Arkansas, and occasional spot shows over across the line into Texas, right? I don't even know how much they were doing in Arkansas yet at that time. That was pretty much it. So the idea that the dog wins from that small territory is pretty astounding. I mean, that's one of the reasons he got put on the map nationally was he was getting coverage like this. Well, and one of the things also Bill After told me, the their contests, the wrestler of the year, all these contests were that you know they would have the for whatever of the year, the they were legitimate in terms of who won and who lost. They made up the amount of votes to make themselves look good, but they they shot with who actually won the voting. So that's still and you know, that was why that the dog and the freebirds and Everybody else that was working Mid-South at the time was all of a sudden getting so much attention in the wrestling business because, fuck it, Louisiana had traditionally been one of the smaller money states in the history of the wrestling business. And suddenly, late 70s, Watts opens up the Superdome, and in 1980, this match draws, you know, 30,000 fucking people. So that people in the in the business were like, "What the fuck's going on down there?" It's it, it was like, it was like running a stadium show in West Virginia at the time. Nobody drew money in Louisiana, and it was a nineteen-year-old kid and an African American superstar. Yeah. So, what the fucker? That's where Watts got his name because, let's face it, he would ta- he was taking people that had no track record anywhere and running the Superdome with him. Jim, who originated the bombs away move off the top rope? Ray Stevens. That is correct. Which wrestler collected a $10,000 bounty for defeating each of the following? Dominic DiNucci, Tony Parisi, and Bruno San Martino. Oh, good lord. Well, actually, well, he didn't pin Bruno. I mean, looking at this and trying to think about it, I'll give you the answer. Stan Hansen. Trying to think how he actually defeated Bruno. Let's get the next one here. Well, maybe they're they're talking about the they collected he injured those people because didn't who was managing? Yeah, it must have been an injury. Run the wizard, Grand Wizard. Uh, it would have been Blassie, I think. Or is it Blassie? That's right. And Blassie put I want I'm I'm going to put a bounty out on these guys, and then Hanson would hurt him, and that would add to his heat. So when he hurt Bruno, technically he got the bounty, and then Bruno came back and kicked shit out of him, and then. He left the territory because he had so much heat people wanted to kill him. True or false, Jim? Special referees are excluded from the safety provision applicable to regular referees, according to the (laughs) NWA. (laughs) That is true. False. What? False. Special referees are not excluded from the safety provisions applicable to... I I thought that was a trick question. Well, you don't have the rule book in front of you, to be fair. Which wrestler, while recovering from an injury managed a sandwich shop in Arlington, Texas, with Jack Victory. Oh, my God. Um, I'm embarrassed about this one because I, when I lived in Dallas, I lived five miles from Jack Victory and, and five miles from Arlington. And I remember some, I, 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 I can't remember. Hollywood John Tatum. Oh, shit. 
No wonder we don't hear anything about that that uh, sandwich shop having all these franchise locations now. John Tatum was involved. Here's a question. I thought they were just a tag team. I didn't know they were business partners. Which wrestler received a record 48,000 calls when appearing as a guest on Boston's WHDH Radio Sports Huddle call-in show? You, well, I, 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 don't, can't even, I don't even know how I, you would get this. Roddy Piper. I, well, yeah. Say, I mean, it's 40 years ago or 30 years ago, the 35, that this game was done, and that was before that. And, yeah, who knows? That was not something that was highly publicized. All right, a few more here this week, and we may do this again in the future. Spell correctly Larry Zabisco's last name. Z-B-Y-S-Z-K-O. That is correct. Good job there. It's tough to do that out loud. It's easy to write it down, but <laughs> that's quite impressive. Who won the Crockett... Let me read it correctly. Who won the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Tag Team Cup in 1987? Oh, shit. Okay, 86 was the Warriors. 87 was the year for, was it Dusty and Nikita? Dusty and Nikita, Dusty that's and Nikita. That's right, because then 88 was Magnum and Garvin, right? Which wrestler, ho- uh, no, 88? No, 88 was, um, no, Magnum was done by that. 88 was Sting and Luger. Oh, sure. that's, that's Magnum and, and Garvin teamed up at the 86 one, I think, in, in New Orleans, maybe. That's right, and they were in the finals against the Road Warriors. That's what it was, whatever the fuck. Which wrestler holds the Guinness, again, this is 1987, which wrestler holds the Guinness world record for tearing phone books with his bare hands? <laughs> um, in 1987. I don't think I would have known this, no way. Hold on, hold on. Who was in the Guinness Book of World Records? Doesn't mean it was in the 80s, just meant it was before that. Tearing phone books with his bare Tearing hands. Tearing phone books with his Paul Anderson. Otto Vons. Otto Vons, son of a bun. I didn't know that. I don't remember ever hearing that before. I've never heard that either. I And it seems like Otto Vons would have publicized all the outside publicity he could get. In what city were these wrestlers raised? Mike Graham, Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff, Steve Kern, Dick Slater, Bob Orton Jr., and Brian Blair. Tampa, Florida. That is correct. Jim, true or false? Junior heavyweight wrestlers are allowed to compete with super heavyweights. True. That is true. Our next question here. Eddie the Lamprey. <laughs> what? <Boy. laughs> what is this question? True or false, Jim? Eddie the Lamprey Gagliarducci was considered by sports writers in the 1930s to be the king of midget wrestling. I've never heard that name before in my life. It's false. Of all the things they made up, (laughs) Eddie the Lamprey Gagliarducci, king of midget wrestling. All right. Here's it. Well, here did they have midget wrestling yet in the 30s? Had that become a thing? Uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I would think I don't think prob- so. You don't think so? I could check. In the 30s. Definitely in the 40s. Yeah, but I don't know about the 30s. We'll see what we can find out here. I'll fill in the blank. Cyclone blank. 
Well, depends on what part of the country you're in. Uh, Cyclone Negro, That's Cyclone right. Anaya. Cyclone Negro uh, was the answer for this one. Okay. Which wrestling manager shares the name of a 1987 defrocked Democratic contender for the U.S. presidency? Gary Hart. Defrocked. Gary Hart. Playboy Gary Hart. You know, you know somebody, somebody <laughs> tweeted an interview that I did on TBS from 87 or 88, whatever year that happened, and I mentioned I said... And I spent the weekend at Gary Hart's place or something like that. And somebody retweeted it here recently and, and said, well, were you and Gary good friends? It was Gary Hart, the fucking presidential <laughs> candidate at the time. And the reason why he was defrocked is because they caught him having a a mistress over to his summer home to go boating or whatever. And that was kind of the meaning of that joke, which didn't age well. Now more people remember Gary Hart, the wrestling manager, than Gary Hart, the guy that ran for president. Jim Crockett Promotions was started by the late Jim Crockett Sr. in 1935 in what city? Bristol, Tennessee, or Virginia is both. Actually, I think you're right, and this says Charlotte, North Carolina. Actually, well, here's the thing. He's wrong on the year, too, because Crockett Promotions was started in 1933. Because that's why they had the 50-year anniversary in 1983, right? But besides that, uh, Crockett started promoting wrestling underneath the promoter in Bristol, which is where he was from, and he was working at a at the appliance store that the, that the the promoter also owned. And then he struck out on his own and moved to Charlotte. I don't think he got to Charlotte till after 1935, but I could be mistaken. Wrestler Paul Jones once on nationwide television threw his championship belt off the Gandhi Bridge in Tampa, Florida. True or false? Well, true if you call Florida Championship Wrestling in the 70s national television. Who is the king of the Canadian Lumberjack match? Joe LaDuke! That is correct. Antonino Rocca was known as the Argentine Bull. True or false? I think that's false. Good job. That is false. True or false? Wrestler Choo Choo Spelnick miffed at the comments of TV commentator Gordon Soley, agreed to appear on TV with him only if the two sat back to back. I got to go with false on that one, but it may be a trick question. It's false, although I do now want to see Choo Choo Spelnick Spelnick. Gordon Soley go at it. What was the last NFL football team which Wahoo McDaniel was a member? Oh, hold on. (sighs) Well, shit. Was it New York or Kansas City? Miami Dolphins. Miami. All right. Nevertheless. That's right. But he played for New York and he played for Miami. Ernie Ladd played for Houston and Kansas City. I don't know whether. Did Wahoo play for Kansas City? I'm not sure. What wrestler became the first to be allowed to compete fully masked in the state of New York on December 18th, 1972? Mil Mascaris. That is correct. This wrestler... And he wrestled Don Jardine, the spoiler, who had to have the open face mask. (laughs) This wrestler, now retired, was known as the Big O. Name him. Bob Orton Sr. That's right. Here's one I don't know, true or false... Don Leo Jonathan popularized the Mormon swing. 
That is, it's the you big know, swing, like the Cesaro. Big swing. You know, the way they had it here yeah. it made it seem like it was a song or a dance. <laughs> Donnelly O'Jonathan popularized the Mormon swing. That's why I was like, what and, the fuck? And then, and then he followed it up with the Bristol stomp. <laughs> yeah, no, that is true. That's the big swing. All right, let's get one final question here this week. I want to try to find a little bit of a harder one. Some of these are... Well, here, let's... Uh... This will be the final question this week as I drop all the cards. Final question this week. Which wrestler is credited with developing the bulldogging headlock? Cowboy Bob Ellis. And that is indeed correct. Cowboy Bob Ellis is the correct answer. Jim, what are your thoughts on the Gordon Soley wrestling trivia game? Well, if there's 1,200 questions and he only asked me about 30 there, then we got 1,170 more, so that's good for the next 10 or 20 drive throughs well, perhaps you're a listener of this show and you're saying to yourself, that does not sound like what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to hear Jim Cornette play trivia. That's not what the drive through is supposed to be all about. Legal action. I think it's time to sue. It's time to sue. And if, folks, if you want to take legal action against us for having a shitty, unentertaining podcast, and there's plenty of evidence of that this, year, this week, then I encourage you to look no further than this man. Stephen P. News. If you need to an outlaw show or two, still to the rest. Yes, folks, if you need evidence. That uh, we have done a crummy program here. It's all over the place. We've left a trail of DNA a mile away. But this man, even if you don't have proper evidence, he can make some up. He's just that good. Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. If you have had a brush or of, of some type of interaction with people and you need legal recourse, he's the man to do it. We've talked about the fact that he's not only a philatelist, but a philanthropist. He's all of those ists. Over there in West Virginia, he's taking care of the hungry people. He's taking care of the kids that need school supplies. He's taking care of homeless people. And on the side, he practices law. And he not only practices it, but he's done that enough that he's gotten good at it. And he's winning over cases left and right. And whether it is the opioid-addicted babies, the poisoned groundwater, the defective uh, machinery that causes people harm, or whether it's just good old-fashioned greed and avarice on the part of these major corporations. Suits are being filed now in the class actions over the not only the opioid-addicted babies, but the pharmaceutical companies that were trying to claim bankruptcy in order to get out of paying previous judgment. It ain't that easy. When you got the legal beagle, the bulldog, Stephen P. New on your side, it ain't that easy for people to get out of what they're supposed to be doing and paying and making right. And he can bring you that same type. What did we say, Brian, in personal injury cases and in, in all these other cases that he's taken, he has collected, Stephen P. New and his talented minions there, over $100 million for people over the last 20-something years. And he can get you folks at least a nickel 95. Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 
888-382-8084. You can get even with Steven or you can just leave with Steve. Every time he goes to a bar, all the women want to leave with Steve. Of course, he's a happily married man and he probably wants to. Well, he is sure now, but he had, know that he's a he had his wilder man. side. He had his wilder side back in the old days. Back a week or two ago, he was crazy. I have some news coming in as we are recording. Uh-oh. Ratings news. I want to get your thoughts on this because what do you really think about this? Do you put too much into it or do you say Rampage has been moved around so it doesn't matter much? But AEW Rampage, which aired on Friday from 5.30 to 6.30 instead of the normal 10 p.m. time slot, did 292,000 viewers. Ouch. The lowest of any Rampage since the August debut. Well, and I mean, we got to give them this one. 5.30 on a Friday afternoon. Seriously. Yeah, that's what um, I'm saying. That's exactly Yeah, no, that you can throw that. Actually, they ought to be turning cartwheels over that. Because if only 200 and something thousand people saw that show, that means the vast majority of people did not see Riho or the Japanese genie or... All the other horse shit that they put on that program, but they didn't get to see Jay Lethal win a match for once, so that's bad. But otherwise, the rest of the show, maybe that's why more people are not calling for the other page to get kicked off the air for what he said, because nobody saw it to begin with. If a wrestler insults a skank in the forest and there's nobody there for the tree to fall on, does it make any noise? You've heard that question asked a million times. I have. The horse's name is Friday, I believe is the answer. That's right. Well, Jim, let's get another question here. This one was sent to Quinny Drive through at gmail.com from AJ, formerly from Mississippi, if that moves the needle for Brian. Okay, thank you, AJ. <laughs> I thought AJ was from Gainesville, Georgia. Here's his question. I have a question about the NWA title. Was it a boon to a territory to say one of their own was the NWA champion, despite the fact that the champ wouldn't be around as much in his own territory? Did promoters sit around in a room for hours until one brave soul threw himself on the metaphorical grenade and let his top star work for the other territories? I see the drawbacks of having your star as the NWA champion, but could you tell me a little bit more about the benefits? Jesus Christ, um, every promoter wanted their top guy to be the NWA champion. That's why there was always the, the vote every year at the convention and why that there was politicking going on to get, you know, if Eddie Graham wanted Jack Briscoe, well, he had to get Fritz and he had to get Bob Geigel and he had to get Jimmy Crockett and enough people on board with that so that, uh, you know, so that it would become so, but no, that I don't think any promoter necessarily ever lobbied for his guy not to be world champion because if it was top his top guy and he found out if the wrestler found out the promoter had blocked him from being the world NWA world champion, the most sought after job in the wrestling business at that time, chances are that would have screwed that up. And if he was a big enough star that people were contemplating him to be the champion, then he could quit working for one guy and go work for somebody else pretty easily. Generally, it was you couldn't get the promoter to shut up about pitching their fucking guy to be champion. And that was why that only the, 
the people like Eddie Graham or Sam Muchnick or the top three or four guys in the business, promoters in the business, really had enough pull to get some of the other promoters to go along with them. Poor Jerry Jarrett was, you know, on the soapbox in the wilderness about giving Lawler the title, but it would have been fantastic for his territory if the local promoter can say, well, Dusty Rhodes in Atlanta or Jack Briscoe in Florida or Jerry Lawler in Memphis or Kevin Von Erich in Dallas or fucking Bulldog Bob Brown in Kansas City or pick the fucking territory. If they could say so-and-so has just won the World Heavyweight Championship, we won't see him as often as we used to because he's going to be all over the country, but that just goes to show that the wrestlers here in this part of the country are the toughest anywhere. Then they go right along doing their business. But when that guy's finished with that belt, like Harley Race did when he went back to Kansas City, now a little promotion like Kansas City has a full-time guy that was a former world heavyweight champion just because Harley's from Kansas City and owned part of the company. Even though it's a little bitty territory, one of the biggest names in wrestling is appearing there regularly. It helps. Uh, so, so no, the only time I can think of, and Brian helped me, that a promoter did not want his guy to be the world champion was the whole debacle with Carpentier and who was it in in who was it at the the promoter in Montreal or Boston? One or the other that Eddie Quinn said Eddie Quinn. He ran both at uh, one period of time or another, but this was when he was running Montreal. Carpentier was his biggest draw. They did the deal where they did a disputed decision with Luthez, so that the theory was Thez was going to take an international tour. Uh, Carpentier and Thez would both be title claimants and then they'd, you know, reunite it after some period of time. But Quinn went back on it because he didn't want to lose Carpentier. And then Carpentier found out about it and ended up getting sideways with Quinn, didn't he? I think so. And of course, Carpentier's title claim would end up being recognized and leading into the formation of the WWA in Los Angeles. And then that title would get split off, although in Los Angeles they had no idea, to becoming Dick the Bruiser's WWA because he won the WWA right. world title there. So it is an interesting history if you track the title. If you track the claim of Carpentier, there's a whole different timeline of the NWA that's really interesting. Well, and Carpentier was that title switch and et cetera was figured into the original AWA storyline for the AWA taught Carpentier created directly or indirectly about what four or five different world champions just off of beating Thez in a disputed decision once and the angle in the NWA that didn't go through. See, I always believe that Carpentier should be recognized as an official NWA champion because he was. He was on the front cover of magazines and programs. They had all sorts of flyers and stuff going out to shows, announcing him as the world champion, claiming he was the guy who beat the belt. Even in the early 60s, they were still referring to him in Chicago as a former world champion. Yeah, it it took with a lot of people. And at a time when the fans especially and everybody in the business paid attention to the world champion because there was only one major one at the time that, you know, he got it. 
And then it just, it all fell apart for a variety of behind the scenes reasons. Jim, our next question sent to Corny. But here's one more. I wonder what, if they had really put the belt on him, who would Carpentier, as we've heard, he was one of the most egotistical, you know, self-centered type of people that didn't want to do jobs and always wanted to be about him. Besides Thez, who could they have ever gotten to fight him to drop it to? Thez could have taken it, but that would have been interesting. Maybe they would have created a monster. Dick Beyer. Again, he went to there Los Angeles. <laughs> he went to LA. So I, I consider that's the route I would look. Dick Beyer. And you weren't going to fuck around too much in LA. They found that out after Bearcat Wright fucked with Blassie. And then he realized he was going to run into the wall of Gene LaBelle and he took yeah. off. Well, with Dick Byer, they wouldn't have needed Gene LaBelle. Right, exactly. Dick could have done it just fine. Jim, our next question sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Tyler in Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you think we will ever see Luchasaurus turn on Jungle Boy like you first <laughs> thought at the beginning of AEW? I don't care. <laughs> I, do, I, don't, I don't care. Because I'm at, after three years of those two... We've talked about it. Jungle Boy ain't gotten a lick better. He's still a bland, boring, mumble-mouthed fucking guy that you can see sitting there playing on his telephone in a corner somewhere. And he's great when he's got somebody to lead him and he can sell, and he's the shits when he's doing a modern-style match. And the dinosaur is irredeemable. What a goof. So does anybody give two shits anymore about his... Are they ready to take Jungle Boy off the Four Pillows t-shirt? Because he ain't holding up his corner. And it's it's been a combination of the sad booking and the fact that this guy has not stepped up and gotten better and taken more responsibility on himself to be a better talker and be a more exciting personality. He just goes in there with his friends and they do their trampoline routine. There's nothing about him that's, I I was in training programs and evaluating guys and their progress and how they start from rookies to getting their experience and their personality coming out. And I see the same guy as I saw three years ago being booked the same way and it wasn't good then. And it's not good now. I'm talking about the way he was booked. He had potential. Still does, but I don't think it's ever going to be realized because he's lost three years. He's still having these, you know, fucking, what do they call the masturbatory Young Bucks tribute matches? How about that? At least Bret Hart's somebody you'd like to jack off over. Uh, Not instead of two fucking middle school looking brothers that probably jack themselves off because nobody else is willing. So I'm over Jungle Boy and I was never a fan of the dinosaur to begin with after I saw him, he looked good standing there. And then I saw him have a couple matches. I said, well, this is hopeless. So I don't, I don't care what they do. They can drop dead, turn blue, burst into flame. As Pat Malone, you say, I don't care. I'll fight you. Fuck you. Run you a foot race. Don't matter to me. The little bits of promos that we've seen with jungle boy. I got to say, it comes across more like a heel than a baby face. Well, that's because he's just a little non-personality fuck with a monotone voice that acts like he can't be bothered to be there. He's not excited about anything. He doesn't stand up for himself. He doesn't put bass in his voice when he's confronted. He's not excited when he gets a match he wants about selling it to people. And he admitted in that interview that we read that 
when when they want him to do promos, he tries to run and hide so he won't have to. Well, fuck. He better be glad he was born looking like that or he'd be a virgin to this day. Well, that's not fair. Don't forget he's also rich. Well, is he rich? Or was his dad rich? Did his, was his dad wanting him to stand on his own two feet, or did he? Well, that's true. His dad was leave him a lot of money, or what? You know, we don't know about his finances. I just saw a Shaquille O'Neal interview, and he said something. I love this answer. They asked him, "What does he say about how does he bring up his kids being so rich?" And he said, "I tell them all the time, you're not rich. I'm rich. <laughs> you're not rich at all. This is all mine. This is my money. <laughs> and I love that." Well, and that's what I'm saying, Jungle Boy. Son of a movie star, won the genetic lottery, born looking like that with that hair, he ought to be beating the pussy off with a fucking stick. But considering his personality, if he hadn't been born looking like that, I guarantee you that the four sisters on Thumb Street would be his date every night of the week. All right, Jim, let's get what may be our final question here this week. Sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Sean Buckaloo. In Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. A place after my own heart. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Sean. I'm writing my dissertation on Southern wrestling. Most of the dissertation compares Memphis and Mid-South and their popularity in the 1980s. I'm currently writing a chapter on the Junkyard Dog. I wanted your thoughts on if you think JYD could have been a long-term draw in Memphis assuming he stayed clean and in good shape. Would his race have held him back in Tennessee more than it what? would have in Louisiana? Jesus Christ. It, no, it, it, it honestly it would have helped him. Because the, the crowd in, in Memphis at the Coliseum in the 70s and 80s was easily half black, if not more than half. And they loved black baby faces. Um, the Magnificent Zulu, we talked about it. The, the, the trivia question, this son of a bitch was one of the worst wrestlers in the history of the world, but sold the Mid-South Coliseum out three weeks in a row against the Mongolian Stomper for the Southern title for two reasons. Number one, the reunion of the Fargo brothers, all three of them for the first time in 15 years or whatever, was underneath it. And secondly, they just showed video of Zulu posing. And here's this giant black guy with a goddamn a, a body that nobody saw in wrestling at that point, 6'7", 275 pounds, 28-inch waist, huge arms. So, you know, they were always looking for a black baby face in Memphis. Or, or a white guy that appealed to the black fans in Memphis because that was Sputnik Monroe and later on Lawler. Lawler and Sputnik as heels got over with the black audience as babyfaces. And, and it was a whole thing. And actually that, that used to create some controversy in the Coliseum because the black fans would sneak in. <laughs> they stopped watching all the doors in the Coliseum. That's why the show started at 7.30. But by 9 o'clock, the, the door guards had stopped watching, and suddenly, between 9.15 and the time that the main event went in the ring in the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum, you would see an extra 1,000 people show up somehow. And they'd usually be up in the, in the cheap seats, which they didn't pay for. 
that was the only town in the territory. It was like that. You only had half your house in. It's even the people that bought tickets. Half the house was in when the show started in Memphis at seven thirty. Everywhere else, everybody was there. So the black fans liked the top heel if he was charismatic, but they also wanted a black babyface, and the, the team of Bearcat Brown and Lynn Rossi all over the territory, but especially in Memphis was was hot at one point and then Lynn Rossi didn't like going to Memphis that much. But Bearcat had a good Bearcat Brown and Bobo Brazil had a great run there in 74 as Southern tag team champions. So the point is dog, they brought dog in in 84 when Watts and Jarrett were working together and he made some shots and the people liked him, but it didn't, it didn't get over like dog did in Houston or like Dog did in the Louisiana Territory, because it was just, it was a guy doing some interviews like he was already a star and coming in to make shots like he was already a star. It wasn't what Watts did with him where first he was, he was actually a heel when he came in Mid-South. And then he switched him, and but he pushed him from the start up through the ranks and wins and et cetera, and they kind of did the same thing. Even though Dog was already over in Houston, he came in several shows in a row and got wins and was built. And it was more of a regular thing rather than just making a shot here and a shot there. I also don't know, honestly, if Dog could have kept up with the Memphis in-ring. Whereas in Mid-South, it was bigger football players. It was Duggan. It was Butch Reed. It was Hoss fights. It was, you know, when Dog was in shape and could go, yes, they were they were good matches. But it, it was because it was short and it was violent. It was explosive. Dog never took a lot of bumps. Dog wasn't a great seller. In Memphis, the baby faces had to take a lot of bumps and they had to sell their ass off. And that's what Lawler was a master of. That's what Dundee was a master of. Those were two things that Dog was not strong on. So I don't know whether Dog's in-ring style would have made him a long-term success because even though he could talk and even though he had the charisma and the aura, his work was nowhere near in the ring what, again, a top guy in Memphis need to be. Lawler, Dundee, even Austin Idol who didn't like to take bumps, but boy, he could talk and the work psychologically. So that's, you know, he would have done well. He wouldn't have been one of the biggest stars in the business like he was in Mid-South. It was different flavor. But in terms of the promos on TV, him inter- his interplay with Lance Russell as opposed to Reeser Bowden or anything in Mid-South, you think it would have worked in Memphis? Yeah, I mean, he could talk. So if you can talk, you can talk anywhere. But then also... The time period. Mid-South got dog in 79 when he was hungry and in shape and fucking cut. And Memphis got dog in 1984 when he was almost ready to walk out of Mid-South and go to the WWF and he was fat and he was unmotivated and he was on the shit. Now, but do you, you may not remember Memphis got junkyard dog in 1977. There was no Junkyard Dog, but they got King Sylvester Ritter. That's right, right after the split. And 
Jared was looking for new talent that he could bring in his territory, and there was still some reticence for established guys to come in for what was viewed as the opposition. Jared was the opposition to the established NWA office. Goulas and Welch had been there for 25 years. So Jared was getting younger guys that needed a spot. And at that time, Dog had been, he'd been in Calgary, right? Big Daddy Sylvester Ritter. And that's where Jake Roberts came in as Jake Smith Jr. for about three weeks also. He'd been in Calgary. But um, Dog also had worked for Nick as Leroy Rochester, which was the most racist-sounding name in the history of the world. And then I found out that that was actually Leroy Brown's real name. (laughs) Sounds like he was named after a field hand and Jack Benny's fucking manservant. Isn't that interesting, though? He had the name of Leroy Brown, and then he's named after a character, technically a character, in the song Leroy Brown. Yes. And better than the Junkyard Dog. And that's where Leroy Brown, that summer, also worked Memphis and started coming out to that song. He was the first person, besides Gorgeous George, really, to use music. And then Michael Hayes would try to say that he, he was two years later, but we were in Memphis and saw otherwise. Anyway. So the point being, Dog in 1977 was in shape and so green he was the shits and he lasted a few weeks and they tried to do something with him as a babyface as the king against Lawler the heel with the battle over the crown and it it just didn't work. He was rotten. But then a couple of years later, he'd had a couple more years experience and Watts found the key to getting him over. And then it was just, it was money for five years. The key was two-minute matches and promos. And a wheelbarrow full of junk. Yeah. But keep him out of the ring. In Memphis, he would have been working long matches. They wouldn't have protected him the same way Watts did, because Watts had to do that. Well, yeah, and and here's the thing. They didn't have two-minute matches in Memphis most of the time because they had less matches on a card, and you had to put in time. And if you couldn't go more than two minutes, you didn't get booked in Memphis, because that would have just been crazy. But Well, you remember the story. That's why Watts fired Ernie Ladd. I've had Watts tell it to me. I've had Ernie tell it to me. And they both told basically the same story from two other ends of the phone. Watts brings JYD in and decides he's going to be the next superhero in Mid-South Wrestling. And he's booked against Super Destroyer, Scott Irwin, Bill Irwin's brother, in, I think it was uh, St. Bernard Civic Center down in New Orleans. I thought it was the grappler. I thought it was Super Destroyer. Okay, you may be right then. I think it's Super Destroyer. Because Watts was specifically saying Scott Irwin. Point being, then Watts talks to Ernie Ladd when Ernie was the booker the next day on, on the phone, wants to see how the show went. And Ernie said, Bill, your boy don't have it. Who's that? A junkyard dog. He's in there with Scott Irwin. I put him 20 minutes through to see what he had. Halfway through, his tongue was hanging out like a long red necktie. Your boy can't go. He ain't got it. He ain't going to last. He ain't going to make it. Watts said, you're fired. And Ernie said, and furthermore, what? (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) I didn't ask you to tell me what he couldn't do. I asked you to tell me what he could do. And he shouldn't have gone 20 minutes with Scott Irwin. He should have beat him in four. You're fired. 
Ernie said, point taken, boss. And he fired him. He brought him back later on at some point. But that was exact. If if the Booker did not give Watts what Watts wanted, his neck was out on the chopping block too. And that's that's exactly the lesson that you should learn. With it, Hobbs, powerhouse Hobbs, he's green. He ain't there yet. Looks like it. Got the personality. Smash him over. Don't have him have a great match for 12 minutes. Have him have a dominant match for four. That's the way you get a motherfucker over. Speaking of over, I think this show's about over. I think it's been there for about two hours now. That's an interesting argument that I won't argue with, but let's uh, get a couple <laughs> songs before we wrap things up. Jim, a new submission from Rocky the Ramon. Let's go to this right now. Rocky, Rocky. Rocky? <laughs> Feelings. <laughs> Cornet hurt my feelings <laughs> when he criticized the wrestling I love. <laughs> Teardrops. Rolling down on my face When Cornette attacks the Wrestlers I love I never clicked on that link of Cornet's podcast. My YouTube channel Tweeting Tweeting how Cornette's so out of touch And tweeting on how I hate Cornette so much Even though he backs up all of his shit All right, well, it appears we are now coming to the conclusion, the latest from Rocky the Ramon. Feelings. I hate hurt people's feelings. I do it, but I hate it. What did you think of that song? That was wonderful, Rocky. Very melodic. You see, Rocky, he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. 
I don't want to hurt your feelings. All right, let's get another song here. <laughs> a little slow, a little slow, but thank he got you. the point across. That's right, but thank you, Rocky, for sending that in. Let's get another song here. This one was sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from CR in CBNL, Canada. What's CBNL? I have no idea. Is that an abbreviation or just a strange word? It's an abbreviation of something, but we don't know what. We'll, I'm sure we'll hear from dozens of listeners momentarily as soon as the show goes up. But here's this song. From CR yeah. in Canada to Vince's. What do you think of that? I'm a big Spin Doctors fan. 
But that was even better. What what incredible picking there on the guitar as well as the lyrical wonderment. That's that's a that's a hit. All right. Well, let's end with one last song. This one, the latest submission from Joey Bowie in Canada. A couple Canadian submissions this week. Joey's always a good one. Let's go to this. The following song is brought to you by Arby's, the place that makes you shit. Used to live in a Stanford apartment At 4 a.m. Billy Mac would call Times are hard in the creative department Jim don't miss it much at all Oh yeah, Jim's alright He just needs another can of Sprite He's okay most of the time He just needs another can of Sprite he used to work with King Kong Bundy Ernie Lack used to call him fat Said that he was stealing mid-south money Jim learned a lot from that big cat Oh yeah, Jim's alright He just needs another can of Sprite He's okay most of the time He just needs another can of Sprite Very fast day. I told Eleanor, Where's Pops? Where's Pops? I said, The only thing we have to fear is my booking itself. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> well, Jim used to book Ohio Valley, teaching guys not to be dipshits. When Johnny Ace wanted catalog models, that's when Corny called it quits. Oh, yeah, Jim's all right. Just needs another can of Sprite He's okay most of the time He just needs another can of Sprite Oh yeah, cause alright We're gonna listen to some corny tonight We're okay most of the time So come listen to the drivers tonight Jim's alright Jim's alright. Jim's alright. Bless you, Tom Petty. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, there's excellent, the latest one excellent. from Joey Bowie. Thank you, Joey. <laughs> you know, we record so much, I forgot about your FDR personation. Yeah. I was trying to do shit today, and it sounded more like FDR. I told Eleanor. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, the drive-thru is closed. Hey, see, the big one's easier to close with. This one is... Why don't you just close before I piss myself? Before Jim pisses himself, remember you can hear the Jim Cordette experience wherever you find your favorite podcast this weekend. And of course, the drive through this time, this place, wherever this is, next week, wherever you find your favorite podcast, get access to the archive. Patreon.com slash Cornette, $5 a month archive. Going back to 2013, Patreon.com slash Cornette. 
the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go, subscribe, go to YouTube, search for Jim Cornette, clips, full episodes, omnibus, Travis Eckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Follow Jim on Twitter, the Jim Cornette. I'm on Twitter at Great Brian Last, 605 Super Podcast, the membership, 605pod.com are available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Don't forget, Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on over there, Jim? Nothing! Hurry! At CornetsCollectibles.com, JimCornet.com, the drive-thru's brought to you by Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen NewLawOffice.com. We will see you on the experience this weekend. Next week, right back here. Go piss! Tell I'll be right back. Well, it's Jim Cornet's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornet's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bomb fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, dick spots, or dance routines. With blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pierre. Everybody, Tony's drive-through. Tony's drive-through. Tony's drive-through. Tony's drive-through. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.